Good morning, everybody, and uh, or good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are in this great big world. We are live from Orlando, Florida at the Rosen Center Hotel on International Drive, and we're getting ready to get underway with the first General Assembly of the World Blind Union. They'll be getting underway here in a few minutes. This event happens every four years. As you probably remember, the last World Blind Union and ICEVI assemblies were held in Bangkok, Thailand. That was back in November of 2012. With me, uh, Brian Charlson is going to be co-hosting along with me. And also, we're going to be interviewing a couple of uh, WBU speakers and other uh, people during the tea breaks. And then, of course, there's a two-hour lunch break, which we'll, we'll sign off for the lunch break because that's a pretty long gap. And then after today's events are done, we will replay all of the events that were broadcasted in order to accommodate everybody in all the 24 time zones in in this world. So, Brian, you got everything Uh, set up over there? My earphone is not picking up anything that I just plugged into the big panel. Let me see. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Not picking up anything, huh? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Right. You should be hearing some ambient noise. Interesting. Because I was hoping that splitter would work. So I've got a three-way splitter, but it's not working very well. I'm going to try something here. I'm going to switch. Huh. Nope. That, that jack is dead. Hmm. Okay, we'll have to find something else. <laughs> I have splitters that one one side is only for input and the other is only for output. Could be a set. Yeah, it could be one of them. It could be one of them. Hey, we'll have to check a couple other things. I think they're going to get going here very shortly. We're pretty close to 9 o'clock Eastern. That's 1,300 GMT. We'll use uh, GMT references since we are broadcasting to an international audience, which we are all the time anyway, but uh, especially for this event, uh, this is meant to attract 
everybody from around the world. All right, they're getting started. And the Ninth General Assembly of the World Blind Union, the 2016 General Assembly, is in order. We are having the second of the General Assemblies that we've had in this region. Twenty years ago, we had one in Toronto. Euclid Harry invited us to come to Canada to participate in helping enhance opportunities for the blind around the world. He served as our president, and he has come to this General Assembly as well. In fact, we have several of our former presidents in this General Assembly. I've observed Marianne Diamond and uh, William Rowland. So we have a number. It is an honor to welcome you to this region of the world. For the first time, it is an honor to welcome you to this country. We have never before had a General Assembly here, and I, who serve as the chairperson of our local organizing committee, am pleased and proud to welcome you to the United States of America. Because we are in this country and proud of what we have here, much of it we've imported from your countries, and we're pleased that you offered it to us. Some things we have found a way to build in this country or enhance in this country that we think are particularly American. To begin this morning's festivities, we want to celebrate our nation, and we would ask that one of the members of the National Federation of the Blind who has been working on the public relations effort for the World Blind Union General Assembly for 2016 and has been a part of our organization now for a number of years and works at our national headquarters, offer a rendition of our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Here is Danielle Trevino. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming. Whose broad stripes and bright stars Through the perilous fight O'er the ramparts we watched Were so gallantly strewn 
dreaming And the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air Gave proof through the night That a flag was still there Oh, say does that star-spangled So as I say, we who have accepted gifts of culture and ideas from you all over the world and have brought it to our country and who now share it with you and give a particular twist to it that we develop in our own nation. We are delighted to have you here. One of the things that we've been working to do in the United States for more than 75 years now is bring the notion that blind people can run our own programs, can build our own independence, can be the people who lead, can show how to enhance our own programs, our own ideas, our own technologies, but also those of our nation and the world. We have been participating in the World Blind Union from the time that it began, but also we have been central to the development of the International Federation of the Blind to show a few elements of what we are in the United States, what we've done, and how we believe in the blind of our nation and the world, I introduced the president of the National Federation of the Blind who came into that office two years ago and who has led with distinction imagination and firmness, here is Mark Riccobono. Delegates, observers, and friends of the World Blind Union, on behalf of the North American, Caribbean region, and the tens of thousands of members of the National Federation of the Blind, welcome to the United States of America. America is a country 
that values freedom, independence, opportunity, determination, and democracy. Born out of revolution, our country constantly strives to have a more perfect union, including individuals with diverse characteristics, backgrounds, and beliefs. And through the value of freedom of speech, we empower our citizens to vigorously debate the governing principles of our land and to break down barriers to equality of opportunity and participation. The American dream has come to be the term used to describe the value that in our country, all people can achieve their individual aspirations with the freedom and opportunities provided in our local communities and supported by equal protection under the law. Yet, even in this great nation, some classes of people continue to struggle for equal access to those ideals 240 years after our democracy was established. Although the blind have been one of those groups denied the complete rights and opportunities offered under our democracy, during the past 76 years, significant progress has been made toward equality in society through our vehicle for collective action, the National Federation of the Blind. A brilliant young blind scholar of the United States Constitution was the rallying point for organizing the blind of America on a nationwide basis in 1940. Dr. Jacobus Tenbrook was the founding president of the National Federation of the Blind and served as its primary leader until his death in 1968. At the birth of our organization, he shared these words that are still the foundation of our organization and which apply also to the World Blind Union. Collectively, we are the masters of our own future and the successful guardians of our own common interest. Let one speak in the name of many who are prepared to act in his support. Let the democratically elected blind representatives of the blind act as spokesmen for all. Let the machinery be created to unify the actions and concentrate the energies of the blind. The Federation has always valued formal and informal opportunities to collaborate with other blind people around the world. In 1952, the National Federation of the Blind National Convention voted to join the World Council on Welfare of the Blind. But Dr. Tenbrook quickly came to realize that the WCWB would not be a progressive world forum for action by the blind. The Federation continued to seek meaningful international connections to the blind through the work of pioneering blind leaders like Isabel Grant, 
who traveled the world to share the Federation philosophy and learn about the progress of blind people in other countries. In 1964, we formed the International Federation of the Blind as an authentic international forum for blind people. Dr. Tenbrook became the IFB's first president and its constitution was drafted by Dr. Kenneth Jernigan, who would later become president of the National Federation of the Blind and the most influential leader in the area of blindness during the 20th century. The first convention of the IFB was planned for 1969, but Dr. Tenbrook's early death in 1968 took much of the momentum out of the new organization. In 1984, a joint meeting of the IFB and the WCWB was held that resulted in the creation of the World Blind Union. Today, we can be proud that the World Blind Union has grown into an effective international vehicle for collaboration and a meaningful advocacy organization led by the blind. <clears throat> we invite our brothers and sisters around the world to our home to share with us the ideas, insights, innovations, and dreams that come from your unique perspectives. We also share with you our progress, along with our desire to continue to test the limits and raise expectations for the blind anywhere in the world. Since 1940, we have tackled discrimination in every aspect of life, education, employment, travel, finances, health care, recreation, civil, civic participation, and parenting. And we have used many tools in our work, organizing in local communities, marching in the streets, battling in the courts, persuading in the boardrooms, moving the politics in Congress, changing perceptions in the media, and demonstrating equality in living the lives we want. We have published extensively about our progress, and we have distributed thousands of pages of literature to all parts of our country and to many parts of the world. We now provide free access to all of our publications via our website, nfb.org. Our national convention, the annual gathering where we discuss our progress and set our priorities, is now the largest annual gathering of blind people anywhere in the world, and we are honored to welcome guests from 20 foreign countries to our convention on a regular basis. In the spirit of innovation that characterizes our nation, the blind of America have led the way in engineering solutions to take advantage of the full capacity of blind people 
and to eliminate artificial barriers that hold us back. One example is our work beginning in 1975 to develop a reading machine for the blind with genius inventor Ray Kurzweil. The original reading machine, the original reading machine was big, slow, and expensive, but it was revolutionary. Through our continued investment and engagement in refining reading technology, we now have a reading machine that can be used on a handheld smartphone, which recognizes text in a second and what's cost less than 100 US dollars. <laughs> the current reading machine is known as the KNFB Reader, and it currently runs on iOS and Android, and very shortly on Windows. This technology is as strong as it is because the blind are leading the way in its development. If you haven't had a chance to check out the KNFB Reader, it will be at our booth in the exhibit hall later this week. And uh, there is a sale going on. And if you're lucky, you can get one of the uh, very uh, dwindling units, just a few left on Android, at the stunning price of $19.99. Literacy is critical to full participation in our society and each and every person in this room knows that for the blind, that means braille literacy. From aggressively pursuing new braille literacy programs to actively working on the Marrakesh Treaty, we march confidently with our friends in the World Blind Union to raise expectations for the blind in access to the world's knowledge. At the urging of the National Federation of the Blind, the United States Congress authorized the minting of the first ever U.S. coin that included actual tactile Braille. Released in 2009, the Louis Braille Bicentennial Silver Dollar created a forum for greater awareness of the value of Braille and the barriers to quality Braille instruction in the United States educational system. And the sales of the coin generated funds to spark new Braille literacy programs. The launch of the Louis Braille coin and the educational programs initiated in 2009 were led by a leader of the National Federation of the Blind and the current the WBU's current first vice president, Fred Schroeder. One of the results of our enhanced Braille literacy efforts was the nationwide expansion of the National Federation of the Blind Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy. The NFB Bell Academy provides blind children with two weeks of quality instruction in Braille, opportunities to practice skills like independent travel with a long white cane, and increased confidence 
from working with blind adult role models. During this summer alone, we have offered 46 NFB Bell Academies in 31 states, providing more than 17,000 hours of instruction to more than 300 blind youth. The United States is known for its technological innovation, including advancing the exploration of new frontiers in our universe. For, nearly, for more than a decade, the Federation has been leading the way in inspiring and engaging blind youth in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. In honor of our work and to help spread the word about Braille, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration flew two of our Louis Braille coins aboard the Atlantis shuttle on mission STS-125. Although we have yet to get a blind person into the astronaut corps and into space, we believe that the first blind astronaut is alive today, and through our work, we will realize success in this and other frontiers. Leaders of the National Federation of the Blind were on hand at the Kennedy Space Center, not too far from Orlando, for the launch of STS-125 to witness Braille flying into space. In honor of our collective determination to expand the horizons for the blind, we thought we would share with you what it was like to be on hand for the launch of that space shuttle and the first few minutes of flight. Sound suppression water system armed. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7. Six, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis. The final visit to enhance the vision of Hubble into the deepest grandeur of our universe. Bypass across the board, scooter, no action. Houston now controlling Atlantis on its way. Discussing the minor trend. 
transients that we're seeing at liftoff. All three engines are in good shape. The vehicle is uh, headed downrange. All three hydraulic systems in good shape, as are the fuel cells. Atlantis is 18 miles uh, and altitude, downrange 23 miles. Already traveling 2,500 miles per hour, approaching staging the burnout of the twin solid rocket boosters, which have been burning fuel at a rate of about 11,000 pounds per second. <laughs> Although the automobile was not invented in the United States, our country has taken great pride in cars that are made in America. And driving has come to be a symbol of freedom, independence, and power. Until the last decade, everybody believed that driving a car required the use of sight. In the National Federation of the Blind, we continue to ask each other challenging questions about the limits for blind people. Each day, we seek to raise expectations for the blind because we know that low expectations are the true obstacle between blind people and our dreams. And as we turned the calendar to the 21st century, Mark Maurer, who served as president of the Federation from 1986 to 2014, began asking why vision is a requirement for driving. He wondered out loud if we could build access to information systems that could present data non-visually and whether blind people could use their own abilities to drive a car completely without sighted assistance. From Dr. Maurer's idea and under his leadership, the National Federation of the Blind began engaging with engineers around the Blind Driver Challenge. While America did not invent the car, the Blind of America did imagine, engineer, and accomplish blind people driving independently. On January 29, 2011, I was honored to be the driver for the first public demonstration of our Blind Driver Challenge project. This took place just an hour from here at the most famous racetrack in our nation, the Daytona International Speedway. Let's relive what it was like for me as the driver and for the 500 members of the Federation who were among the tens of thousands of spectators present that day. A title appears, Blind Driver Challenge, Daytona International Speedway, January 29, 2011. A black SUV has bright lettering on the hood, National Federation of the Blind. Mark sits in the driver's seat. He wears a purple shirt and a headset microphone.
black sleep shades with the word Mindfold on it cover his eyes. Fingerless black driving gloves with wires attached are on his hands as he holds the steering wheel. The view through the windshield is of the track. On the matte black asphalt surface are two parallel yellow lines. They are located on the left side of the track near the grass-covered infield. The track slopes gently up, abutting the grandstand on the right. The views during the video are through the windshield or views of Mark as seen from the passenger seat. That hand still extended out the window. He gives a wave now to the cameramen that are down there, and he is rolling. He is rolling. Mark Riccoboto of the National Federation of the Blind is rolling. Straddling that big double yellow line that we have here at Daytona, which NASCAR drivers know they're not supposed to go below. But here he goes, driving off towards turn one into the infield, and up there, there will be... An obstacle slalom course that you can see once he does arrive in that area. And Kevin, it, he's not going real slow, really. Is he's looked like he's doing probably 20, 25 miles an hour, maybe. Nearing uh, the turn one down there, he's now just uh, a car length up on the racing surface above the yellow line. And now it looks like the brake. He hits the brake, turns left, making his way perfectly into what is turn one of the 3.56-mile course here at Daytona. Approaching the first to set of barrels, makes his way around those perfectly. Now cuts her over the second one, and he's approaching the third set, and he avoids them to the right. A perfect trip through the slalom course. A perfect slalom course for Mark Riccobono and the National Federation of the Blind. And now, of course, he's got to work his way through the infield. He's going through what is turn two for the Rolex 24 cars. It'll be coming up very shortly. He's got to work his way around and all the way through the International Horseshoe and up to the kink where we have something very special coming up in a short while. But he's got quite a ways to go. But already, how would you like to go out there? Let's say we put a blindfold on you to do what he has done already here at Daytona. <laughs> I don't think you'd be very comfortable, but obviously he's done a great job, went right through the slalom, and now working his way around in the infield. It's There's a vivid demonstration of the capacity and the ingenuity of blind people collaborating with society to change perceptions and create opportunity. That's what today is all about. Well, Mark now is about uh, halfway to the horseshoe as he continues east toward the International Horseshoe, and he is uh, very shortly, he will be approaching the stands that are full over there where uh, your group is seated, I'm assuming, uh, Kevin. Yeah, the purple shirts are going to be giving him a rousing roar. He says he'll honk when he goes by the National Federation of the Blind uh, stands. Well, I'll tell you what, he made a perfect apex at the Horseshoe, so he is now continuing around that turn. And uh, he's within, uh, all 50 yards of that grandstand. He's coming up to the grandstand, fellow Federationists. He is there. There he is, Mark Riccobono, the first ever blind driver at Daytona. Dr. Mark Maurer said we would do it a decade ago. A team, a team. Passes stands with 400 NFB supporters wearing purple shirts.
He has passed the grandstand now and is headed down toward the kink following that van that's out in front of him by, oh, some uh, 120 yards or so. By the way, that van has several boxes in the back of it, and shortly... They're going to do what they tell you not to do. Letter, they're going to throw those boxes out in front of him. That's right. I think he teaches his son Austin not to do that. I I think I called him Jordan earlier. Austin Riccobono's in the house. Don't be littering like your dad and his team. Well, there comes the first box, and now let's see if Mark uh, avoids it. He does. He passes it on the right. The second box has been deployed, and he passes it on the left. Third box is out. The fourth box is out, and he's perfectly making his way between the two. So they're throwing boxes out of the back of the van, and the blind driver is avoiding the boxes using this technology. So he's made it through the slalom. He's made it through the boxes that have uh, come out. Uh, next up, once he goes through the uh, Western Horseshoe, we're going to have a moving pass coming up. And what exactly is that? The plan is for him to be able to actually pass the van. He'll go to the left of the van, uh, the same van that was throwing out the boxes. He'll be able to pass it just like you would do over here at uh, I-4 or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes they don't let my wife pass, you know, and she gets a little... Right now, Mark's going a lot faster than sometimes you can go on I-4 as well. <laughs> well. Now I look out, the van is pulled to the inside of the racetrack, and this is where we're getting ready for the moving pass. And Mark is going uh, to the outside of the racetrack with the van down towards the bottom of the racetrack. And here we come up. He's closing in on the van to make the moving pass. Mark turns right, then straightens, gaining on the white van. He closes the distance. The grandstand lies ahead. Well, this is what it's all about, this kind of dynamic display of the capacity and ingenuity of collaboration between the National Federation of the Blind and many in our community. It'll create opportunities for education and employment. It is an historic day, Jim and Larry. Well, Kevin, he successfully made the pass. 100% complete so far. He has done everything that we expected. And he's coming up to the finish line. He has made the pass, and he's coming to the finish line. Makes a perfect turn. And this is just the beginning. This is the start of it. Over the next decade, we will be looking for university programs and corporations to accept the Blind Driver Challenge and collaborate with us. He's approaching the end of the run, makes his way in between the barrels that are set up there, and mission accomplished. We're proud of you, Mark Riccobono. We're proud of the National Federation of the Blind. What a great drive. A great drive at Daytona International Speedway. Mark pumps his fist. Thank you so much, Daytona. Well, congratulations to Mark and Kevin. Thank you for your input. And uh, this has indeed been an historic occasion here at Daytona. And I know Mark is going to be climbing out of that uh, SUV very shortly down there. And he's going to be a happy young man. Dr. Maurer strides to the SUV. Mark removes his headset and exits the vehicle. They shake hands. How are you, sir? Great. Glad you Great job, Mark. Great job, Mark. While we do not yet have the power to put you on a space shuttle, we do have the ability to give you a ride in our blind drivable vehicle with a blind person as your chauffeur. On Monday afternoon, we will have a limited number 
of opportunities for WBU delegates to take a trip around the parking lot with me driving the car. Please visit our General Assembly welcome desk in the foyer to sign up for the limited number of time slots that are still available for Monday afternoon. The blind of America continue to seek new ways to expand opportunities for the blind. We no longer know what the limits are for blind people. We do know that our imagination and determination will allow us to pursue all of our dreams. We also know that the collaboration of the blind of our country with the blind around the world is increasingly important in pursuing those dreams. Many of the artificial barriers we encounter, whether it is inaccessible technology and books, the dangers that quiet cars pose to all pedestrians, or the misconceptions about blindness that are used to restrict our rights are now barriers on a global scale. However, these barriers are no match for the self-determined, action-oriented, and authentically driven union that brings us together today. On behalf of the National Federation of the Blind, we welcome you to our home. We thank you for your work to make our lives better as blind people. And we welcome the opportunity to learn from and to share with you. In closing, I share with you the promise that members of the National Federation of the Blind make to each other, as it is a promise we also share with the delegates of the World Blind Union. Together, with love, hope, and determination, we will transform dreams into reality. Welcome to the United States. Two things. I just want to tell you, we were standing on the track. Mark Riccobono was nervous. <laughs> I know it doesn't look like it, but he was. The other thing, we love to think about the successes we've had in the past. They're splendid. They make great memories. They help bring people together to share spirit to dream about tomorrow. But most often, we like to think about the successes of the future. And those mean that we need to work with people who have the spirit, the dream, the capacity to wonder, those who are colleagues in the United States and around the world, which is the reason that we're so pleased to welcome you here.
Now I have, um, aside from the welcome, a few other details about what's coming up during the course of this meeting. We were offered the chance to give you a culture night of the United States. And you might say, what is the culture of the United States? We said that to ourselves. We said, what do you do to show off the United States? And I said to my colleagues, I decline to give people McDonald's hamburgers. <laughs> I realize they came out of here, but that's not the culture of the United States. So on the culture night, which is Monday night, after you drive around in the car with Mark Riccobono at the wheel, I've done this, and it's very safe. Uh, I've also driven the car, and occasionally I was on the track. Uh, I was exciting, but not as good as Mark Riccobono. So I don't think you'll get a chance to drive it this time. It takes practice. But after you get done with your ride in the car, you should come to the culture night, which is happening in the convention center. You go to the second floor and across the bridge into the convention center, and there'll be a culture night there. And we're going to have a baseball theme. We're going to have baseball food, and we're going to have uh, the opportunity for you to throw pitches. Uh, the best pitchers in the United States throw pitches at about 100 miles an hour. And if you can get even close, then maybe we'll find somebody who'd like to give you a contract. But uh, if I can make it to 40 miles an hour, I'll feel grateful. And then we're going to have the opportunity for you to participate in addition to throwing baseballs, if you want to do that, and eating food and so on. You can ride on a mechanical bull. We did not invent the bull in the United States, but we believe we invented the mechanical bull. So you can ride on a mechanical bull. I did this. It uh, is possible to do it without uh, getting hurt, and I've done so. I stayed on there for about a minute and a half, which people tell me is a great time for riding one of these things. And uh, then we're going to have entertainment. We're going to have music that came from America, and we're going to have, in addition to that, we have worked with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration for many years, and we're going to have an astronaut uh, with us who will talk about what it's like to be in space and who will uh, let you have pictures if you're there early and uh, who will show you some of the artifacts that are used by people who explore in space and then uh, we'll have the featured music performed by blind people at the culture night so please come to the culture night on the final day of the agenda or the general assembly we have a gala dinner you have all been invited to the gala dinner, but we want to make sure that we have the meals available for you that we need, but that we don't pay for ones we don't need. So your invitation is in your package of material. If you will bring it on the 20th or the 21st day of uh, this month to the welcome desk and turn it in, you'll get a banquet ticket, and you'll need to bring your banquet ticket with you to the gala dinner on the final night. Some of you will want to explore the city that night, I understand, and some of you will want to come, and we want to know how many to plan for and how to set the room and things like that. So please get your tickets for the gala dinner at the welcome desk. Um, and uh, we are, of course, 
going to be around this hotel. Uh, we have planned for lunches for you at $12 a piece. There, it's a good deal for a lunch. You can have a sandwich and a salad and things like that, uh, potato chips and you can have uh, cookies and fruit and a drink, all of that for $12. It's either in cash or by credit card. There is a note in your agenda packet that says you can charge it to your room, but that was true of a different system. The system we're using now doesn't permit that, so it's either credit card or cash, please. Also, the prime restaurant in this hotel is the Everglades, and during the time of this meeting, we have uh, worked out with the Evergrades to offer a discount of 25% to participants. So if you will tell them that you are from the World Blind Union, you can get a substantial discount for that. Our, and in the morning and the afternoon, we're offering tea and coffee breaks, and you see those in your agenda. So they are, they are next door in Ballroom A, and also that's an internet site so it's an internet cafe, and you get free internet in there along with your coffee and your tea, and you can participate with the internet in there anytime you want during the day, so please make available to you that if you want to do it. It is a joy for us to welcome you here to the United States. It's our first time having you. We love it. We're glad you're with us. We look forward to the progress being made. Our spirit, we have done our best to show you. We believe that that spirit is part of the World Blind Union, which makes it a good reason for us to be part of the World Blind Union, too, and to dream about how we can build tomorrow to be better than it is now, and to know that we who are blind will make a difference for ourselves for our nations, for the societies in which we live, for all the blind who come after us. It's an honor to have you here. Before we move to the rest of the program, we would like to offer you one more song. Again, from Danielle Trevino. This is God Bless America, and here's Danielle. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light. From above, from the mountains to the prairies to the ocean, white with fog. God bless America, my home, sweet home. America, land that I love, stand beside 
mountains, to the prairies, to the oceans, white with fog. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. And now to hear for the remainder of the morning. From the President of the World Blind Union, this is Arndt Holte. Here you go, Arndt. I'm out of here. Oh, no. Sit here. Stand right up here. Okay. Just walk up and talk to me. Okay, fine. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Mark. Uh, while I'm talking, I would also like the officers of uh, World Blind Union to come and join me here on uh, the podium. Um, thank you for this wonderful uh, experience of uh, American uh, history and culture, uh, my good friend uh, Mark Maurer. It is uh, always a great pleasure to be here. And uh, I must also admit that I have, um, I think there are two or three times been to the convention of NFB, and uh, it is always an uh, experience for the life. You often experience new things, you meet new friends, and also the feeling that uh, this hotel it be belongs to blind and partially sighted persons. If you come into this uh, hall, the reception hall, and the, the um, convention is going on, it says only click, 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 because of all the white cleans. It's wonderful to be here again, and uh, it's wonderful to be with you, uh, my friends here in the United States, and also uh, to experience what you have uh, gained and uh, what, how, how uh, good the preparation have been to this um, General Assembly. Dear friends, dear delegates, sisters and brothers, we are now going to have our General, um, general Assembly for, for some days. Oh, the microphone is not functioning. Maybe I can put it away. Our General Assembly has started, and we are all happy to be here. There will be many discussions, both in the meeting hall and also outside the meeting hall. And all discussions are important, not only those have being here in the meeting hall. Every four years, we have our General Assembly. And uh, I must admit that uh, the time has passed very fast. 
four years have been very short when I'm standing here now. Maybe the, that has something to do with my own age. It's often that way, you're growing your age and the time is going faster and faster. I hope you have been satisfied with what we have done during this uh, uh, term. We will come back and report and uh, find ways to uh, discuss also new challenges we have in, in front of us. But I really hope that we also can report results back, which so shows that we have been working hard and that we have also tried our very best to find ways to solve the problems and make the world a little bit better for blind and partially sighted persons to live in. We are coming from many different countries. The situation in the countries are totally different. I've been visiting countries in all parts of the world. I saw, I went through, tried to go through my, my list of countries that, that I visited during my career, and it's more than 100 countries. And I know also how people, how blind and partially sighted persons are living in different places, in rural areas, in Africa and Asia, Latin America, but also in big cities like New York, London, and, and so on. Of course, there are differences, but there are also similarities, similes. And the thing we have in common is our lack of sight, and that makes it easier for us to talk together, to be together, and understand each other. I will say something more about that later on. I hope this will be uh, another General Assembly where we can uh, find ways forward, where we can meet new friends, where we can put the most powerful persons in the leadership of our organization, that we can, uh, that we can gain what we will, the, the goal we, ha we have, and try to find new ways to solve our challenges. I know that we have the best people of our movement in this meeting hall, and I know that we are here and we can find those, uh, those opportunities for the future, not for ourselves, not for our organizations, but for the blind and partially sighted persons all over the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, then we go on um, to our first business. Is it punchline? Oh, there it is. Yeah. Thanks. Okay.
then we will start with our first um, business session, and uh, I have the pleasure to share that one. It is Arndt Holte, the president of Verbland Union. And uh, I think we will start up with a roll call, and then I will uh, give the floor to Penny, who is going to do, to do that. Penny is our uh, chief executive officer based in Canada. Yeah. Okay. We, we can, uh, it's going to be too hard for me to use the podium because of my arm. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay? I think so. I, 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 can, I can move it. I can move it. All right. Okay, hold on. I think, let me try this right. All right. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to see all of you here. I'm, um, I'm, trying to find information on my screen and look and I'm switching between my left and my right hand with my mouse for reasons that some of you know um, um, so let me just get to the beginning okay here I am can you hear me all right good thank you you, you cannot hear me okay I've just moved the microphone a bit can you hear me better now Yes? We're good? All right. Um, if, it's, um, if it's all right, I will read out the names of the countries that we, uh, that we know are here and eligible to vote. So if countries are here and they're not financial, they're not eligible to vote according to the Constitution, so they won't be, they won't be read out. And countries that are not here... We're not, I'm not reading that out. Is that all right? Okay. All right. It's the first country. Albania. Here. Thank you. Angola. Argentina. Just bear with me. I'm using my large print as well, so it takes me a second. Australia. Thank you. Austria. Thank you. Went down through some of them, aren't you? Benin. Bene. Mira, are you here? Oh, she should be, so we'll check. Be Benin. No? Not yet? Okay. She's here? Thank you. Perfect. Bhutan. Welcome. Brazil. Um, Burkina Faso. Cambodia. Thank you. Cameroon. Cameroon. Is Paul here? Anyone seen Paul yet? No? Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Canada. Cap Verde. Thank you. Um, Chad. I know you're here. I saw you yesterday. China. 
Colombia. Gracias. Congo Brazzaville. La République démocratique de Congo. Congo Democratic Republic? Oui, bon, merci. 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 Okay. Um, Cuba. Excellent. Czech Republic. Denmark. Ecuador, Egypt. Egypt, there's only one. Dina, you here? Egypt? I'll have to check. El Salvador? Thank you. Ethiopia? Thank you. Finland? France? France? We have a number of delegates from France. Anyone here yet? Oh, thanks so much. Gambia. Germany? Ghana. Guatemala. Gracias. Guinea Conakry. Has he arrived yet? I know there is some. Guinea Conakry? He's coming? No? He's here? Oh, great. Thanks. Perfect. Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Equatorial. Guinea-Equatorial. Not yet? Okay. Haiti. Oui? Bon. Honduras. Hungary? Yes? Iceland? India? <laughs> now that's enthusiasm. Ireland? Thank you. Israel? Thank you. Italy? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Japan. Thank you. Uh, Jordan. Good morning. Kenya. Thank you. Uh, Kuwait. Good morning. Kyrgyzstan. Good morning. Laos, thank you. Lebanon, thank you. Lesotho, thank you. Liberia, Liberia, yes, great, thanks. Lithuania, thank you. Uh, Madagascar. Is she here yet? I know she got her visa, so I'm not sure if she's arrived yet. I think she's arriving a little bit later because her visa was really delayed, so she may not have arrived yet. Okay, Malawi? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Malaysia? 
<laughs> Mali. Mali? Yes, thank you. Mauritania. Yes? She's here? Good. Thank you. Mauritius. Mauritius? Huh? Yes, thank you. Uh, Moldova? Thank you. Mongolia? Thank you. Morocco? I know I saw some Moroccans yesterday, so they must be here. Are they in the room? Morocco? No? Okay. Mozambique? Thank you. Myanmar? Thank you. Namibia? I don't know if you or not. We weren't sure. Are they here? Namibia? Oh, good. Good. Because we weren't, we weren't sure. <laughs> so we're happy to see you. Nepal? Yes, thank you. Netherlands? Anyone from the Netherlands here yet? Netherlands? Not yet? Okay. New Zealand? Morning. <laughs> Nicaragua? Niger? Merci. Nigeria? Thank you. Oman? I know they're here, I've seen them. Oman? Well, they're around somewhere, I have seen them here. So, Pakistan? Panama? Okay, I'm almost finished. Philippines. Thank you. Poland. Poland, thank you. Portugal. Good. Okay. Um, Russia's not here. Rwanda. Good. Uh, Sao Tome in Principe. Sao Tome? He's here, I saw him, yeah, thank you. Saudi Arabia? Yes. Senegal? Yes, I saw you too. Serbia? Good morning. Uh, oh no, Somalia couldn't come, sorry. Uh, South Africa? Good morning, South Africa. Spain. Okay, and Sweden. Thank you. And um, Tajikistan. Yes. Tanzania. Thank you. Thailand. Thank you. <laughs> Togo? Okay, I'm getting to the end. I think you forgot Norway. I did forget Norway. Oh my goodness, sorry. <laughs> you're right. I, it, that's my large print. It goes down the screen and it must have skipped over. Okay, Norway? 
Thank you. Thank you. I was going to ask at the end if I've missed anyone. United Arab Emirates? Thank you. United Kingdom? Uh, I don't think there's anyone here from the United States. Is there? <laughs> Uruguay? Thank you. Uh, Venezuela? Is the Chia here yet? I know she was delayed. Yes? Okay. Vietnam? Okay. Thank you. Um, almost there. Zambia? Thank you. Um, Zimbabwe? Now I'm going to go to the international and honorary life members, but is there, are there any national members who are here and who I missed calling out and who are eligible vote, to vote, meaning that you are financial? Is there anyone I missed? Sri Lanka, you're absolutely right. I apologize. Anyone else? All right, thank you. International members, then, that we um, understand are here. Um, ICEVI, International Council for Education. Anyone here yet? I know flights were delayed. Yes, no? Yeah, they are coming. They're, 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 they're here. Yeah? IAPB, Peter? There were some flights that were delayed that we're aware of, so. Um, um, Daisy Consortium? Is he here yet? He's here, okay. CBM, Christian Bly Mission? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Another meeting. Sight savers. <laughs> International Blind Sports Association, IBSA. Yes? No? Okay. Hadley School for the um, Hadley Institute for the Blind and Visually Impaired? Good. Thank you. And Perkins International? For the international members, you actually have seating at the uh, table up the front, just across the, the hall, the way from the uh, officers and staff table. So you may not have realized your, your, where your seating was. Um, Okay, honorary life members we have present um, Dr. Euclid Harry. Yeah, I know he's here, haven't seen him this morning. Paul Lunenberg. Good morning. And uh, Judith Versofsky. And. Um, I think they're the ones that are, William Roland is here, and have I missed any other inter, uh, honorary life members who are here and that I missed in my list? But just so the honorary life members and international members, your seating is at the front, the front table to at the right of the hall, as you're looking at it, from where I'm sitting on the top to the to the to the left. So at the break, you might want to reposition your yourselves there, um, if you wish. I believe, and then the the table officers who are voting: uh, President Arnhold, I'm here. First Vice President Frederick Schroeder, here. 
Second Vice President Enrique Perez, Treasurer uh, A.K. Mittal, and Past President Marianne Diamond. Okay, that's the roll call, Mr. President. Thank you. There you go. Yeah, you can take that back yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I can tell you that my first General Assembly was back in uh, Cape Town in 2004. And we, we, I think we used almost three days on the roll call. So this is very quick, Penny. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Um, the, then we move on to the agenda. And the first is uh, acceptance of uh, the agenda. And it has been sent out and circulated. And I guess there will be no other points on this uh, agenda. So I ask for acceptance of this uh, agenda. Could you accept it? Say aye. Uh, fine, thank you. Fine, thank you. Then we move on to the report for the General Assembly, which took place in Bangkok 2012. Of course, this has been circulated and uh, used in our work, so this is also a formality, but we, uh, I will ask for the acceptance of the report from 2012. Mr. Rungta, uh, second. <laughs> Thank you. The next point is uh, appointment of uh, assembly committee. And the case is that we already have started working in these uh, uh, committees. So this is more an information and a formal appointment of those committees. But they have already been in work. And um, I just open my note taker for, to find the names um, uh, and we start with the credential committee uh, it is led by the second vice president Enrique Perez uh, AK Mittel is a, a member of the committee from India Charles Mossop you are still in the committee he is from Canada uh, and Un Jönner Hagen from Norway is the last member of the Credential Committee. So I hope you can accept this. Then we move on to the Resolutions uh, Committee. And we have uh, asked uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Maurer to share the Resolutions Committee. The members will be John Heilbrunn from uh, Denmark. Mark is from the United States. Uh, Eli Marcha from Tanzania. Montian Bunten from uh, Thailand. And Volmir Raimondi from uh, Brazil. The last committee we have to appoint is uh, those uh, persons who are counting the votes. And uh, we have asked uh, Tadje Iversen from Norway to be the returning officer leading this committee. And then we have um, uh, as members Javier Gomez from Spain, um, Patricia Liener from United States, and we had one more, uh, Penny, who was that? Marie-Camille Blake. 
Marie-Camille Blay from Canada. Those were the committees uh, we had to uh, point. Now we are moving to the next point, obituaries. And we have asked our um, second vice president, Mr. Enrique Pérez, to do that. So the floor is yours, uh, Enrique. Okay, thank you, Mr. President. Buenos dias, bonjour, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends. Every General Assembly, we come together as the WBU family to commemorate and acknowledge those who have passed away but who are still in our hearts and in our minds. These are well-known individuals who have, through a lifetime of effort and dedication, contributed to promoting and supporting our community within their own countries and worldwide. I would like to start by remembering today those who left us from Europe in 2013. Eric Staff from Sweden, former member of our development committee. He passed away on March of that year. We do acknowledge very much his services and contributions. Arvo Karvinen, Secretary General of the Finnish Federation of the Visually Impaired and EBU Honorary Life member. He left us on October of the same year. Also in the same month, we lost Dr. Hans Schulz from Germany, blind federal court judge, and over 50 years of service to CVM supporting programs for the blind in developing countries. Helen Alex Hall from NABP of Norway, active member of the EBU Rights Commission. She left us in November of that year. We also lost Elsa Monrer-Hogan from Norway, former EBU Women's Committee in January 2014. On February of that year, we saw the passing away of Dr. Claude Chambet from France, president of the French Confederation of the Blind and a very active leader of our movement and in particular of the low vision networking. I am sure many of you remember and met Alan Suti from the UK. Alan was a trustee of the RNAB and chaired the elderly group of the, blind, of the World Blind Union championing the needs of elderly blind locally, nationally, and globally. He deserves much praise after 27 years of dedicated service to our common cause and to the World Blind Union, deeply mindful of the affection and esteem he left in our community. Also from the UK, Sir Duncan Watson, former chairman of the RNIB and president of the World Blind Union from 1988 to 1992. Sir Duncan passed away on April last year. He has been a well-known personality around the world. During his term, he was a determined champion for human rights, representing WBU at the United Nations and at international disability organizations. 
he maintained the non-negotiable position that only organizations of the blind could speak on behalf of blind people, an early version of the principle, nothing about us without us. During his time as WBU immediate past president, Sir Duncan was a member of the working group which drafted the UN standard rules on the equalization of opportunities for people with disabilities. He also worked tirelessly, campaigning with ultimate success to secure the banning of laser guns, which could cause blindness during armed conflicts. We move to the African Blind Union and remember today Eli Law from Benin, who served as president of l'Association pour la promotion et l'intégration sociale des aveugles du Benin for 17 years, passing away in November 2012, right after our last General Assembly. Jean-Pierre Louyat from Congo Brazzaville, president of LANADVC in Congo Brazzaville, who left us in June 2013. Mr. Ismaila Konate from Mali, former president of Mali Union of the Blind and former president of the African Union of the Blind too. He lost, we lost him in November 2015. Mr. Soli Abdul Rahmane from Niger, founder and former president of l'Union Nationale des Aveugles to Niger, as well as former minister of justice in Niger. He left us in February this year. Francis Kandiru from Uganda, chair of the Uganda National Association of the Blind and my predecessor, as World Bank Union's second vice president. She was also recently chair of the WBU Human Rights Committee until she died last April. Frances was a true advocate for Braille, for the rights of women, and for the blind and partially sighted persons living in developing countries. She firmly believed in education and always ensured that blind students from Uganda and from Africa were aware of and supported to apply for our scholarships. She was the first blind woman from Africa to hold such a senior role within the World Blind Union. We as individuals, collectively, as a community of the blind of the world, mourn her passing, very recent, and feel deeply a sense of true loss as a leader and as a friend. From the Asia-Pacific region, we also remember today John Wilson from Australia. John Wilson was an honorary life member of the WBU. He left us on January 2013. Paul Manning from New Zealand. Paul Manning was a long-time blindness advocate, especially for children and their parents, and served as CEO of Parents of Vision Impaired. He left us in May 2014. And finally, from the Asia region, we remember today Mr. R.A. Shirsena from Sri Lanka, former Chief Secretary of the Federation of the Visually Handicapped of Sri Lanka and former Treasurer of Asia Blind Union. He passed away in November 2015. Also, Mr. S.L. Hetirachi from Sri Lanka, 
one of the founding members of the Sri Lanka Council of the Blind, executive director for more than 25 years. He left us in January last year. Our community has lost these friends and wonderful leaders, but millions of blind people are better off today thanks to their contributions. May you all rest in peace with the gratitude and quiet respect of we, the blind of the world. Let us pray for them and for their families to find peace and comfort. And now, please, let's stand up for a moment in remembrance of them. Thank you. Thank you, Enrique, and also thank you for the way you are doing this and uh, all the kind words you are saying about our good friends. Then we move to the next point, and um, that is about the credentials. And uh, the credentials, uh, credential committee has had its uh, meeting last night, and we are getting the report from the committee, and the committee is shared by Enrique. So you can uh, continue, Enrique. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Hello again. Following our constitution, uh, Article 4, Section 1, the Credentials Committee presents to the Assembly the following report after validating eligibility of voting delegates. We met yesterday at 2.30, and we have uh, prepared the following report to be presented before you. Countries present at the General Assembly, 99. National delegates present and eligible to vote, 195. Number of validated proxies received, 85. International members eligible to vote, 8. Honorary life members present, 6. Number of table officers present, five. And finally, total number of eligible votes, 299. Thank you. Thank you, Enrique. Are there any comments to the report? No? Then the report is uh, heard, and uh, we know how many people are present here and can vote in uh, the General Assembly. Then we move on to the first report of uh, the nominations uh, committee, and that is uh, done by uh, Mr. Uh, William Rowland. William, for those who are new, he 
has also served as um, the president of World Blind Union and been in the table offices for many years. Uh, we had um, originally been point, appointed another person for this position who could not serve uh, in um, the General Assembly, and then we asked William to take this responsibility. Thank you so much for doing that, William. And uh, I invite you to give the first report from the nomination committee, please. Thank you, President. Good morning, bonjour, buenos dias, salam alaikum. It's my pleasure to present to you the first report of the nominations committee. The committee had the following membership. Amir Ashraf from the ABU region. Fernando de la Raga from Latin America. Jim Tokos, North America, Caribbean region. Kevin Murphitt, Asia Pacific region. And Paul Lunenburg, European Union, European Blind Union. And myself from the AFUB region. We met on two occasions, first in telephone conference and yesterday evening at six here at the assembly, and much communication in between. Our duty was to validate all nominations and ensure that all nominees met the requirements in terms of signatures, information, and the necessary support. This we have done. With the support I wish to acknowledge of CEO Penny Harton, and more recently also of Maggie Leung. I now come to the nominations. First for the position of WBU President 2016-2020. We have received one nomination only. The nominee for president is Frederick Schroeder. I now ask for you to support this nomination to approve this nomination by acclamation. Thank you very much. We come to the position of first vice president. Again, we have received one nomination only. Federico Riano of Spain. I ask you to support this nomination by your acclamation. Those in favour. Right, we now come to some elections. Um, that one's to be elected tomorrow, the first vice president. But there's only one. 
approved the, they have till six to put in the nomination. Oh, yes, no, no, we'll say, we'll say. Yeah. Yes, okay, yes, sorry. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, sorry. Um, so that can still be done. Yes, yes, okay. yes. yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm corrected. The position of first vice president remains open, okay? <laughs> so, um, you're the first person to be unelected, Fernando. Uh, <laughs> uh, nominations for this position and others I will mention remain open until 6 p.m. today, 6 o'clock this evening. Secretary General, we have two nominations. The first one is David Okon of Nigeria. The second nomination is Ajay Kumar Mittal, aka Mittal of India. Nominations for Treasurer. Again, we have two nominations Ahmad Alouzi of Jordan and Martin Abel Williamson from New Zealand. Now, nominations for these positions, First Vice President, Secretary General and Treasurer, remain open until 6 o'clock this evening. If there are further nominations, they should be submitted at the WBU office, room or suite 247, on the second level before six o'clock tonight. Second Vice President, we have five nominations. First one is Mohammed Kurbali from the Gambia. Second nomination, Mohammed Izawi from Morocco. Third nomination, Fayez Al-Azmi of Kuwait. Fourth nomination, Eli Macha from Tanzania. Fifth nomination, Diane Bergeron of Canada. Those then are your nominations, uh, and we will give further report and uh, announce for the elections later in the Assembly. President, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, William. Um, I wonder, Fred, if you will say some, some, some words uh, as incoming president. You will get also the opportuni opportunity later in, in the meeting. But uh, let me introduce to you the incoming president, Frederick Schroeder. Thank you. There we go. Thank you very much. Well, I deeply appreciate the confidence you have shown in me. It is a true honor to be elected to serve as the president 
of the World Blind Union. I lost most of my vision when I was seven years old and gradually lost the remainder over the next nine years. So I have been totally blind since age 16. And trust me, that's been a very long time. <laughs> and when I went blind, I assumed that the rest of my life would be spent in the care of my family. I assumed I could not work. I assumed I could not finish my education. I assumed I would never live independently, never marry, never have a family. And it was through the encouragement of other blind people who I met through the National Federation of the Blind that I realized that most of the limitations that we assume about blindness come from social attitudes, assumptions, and stereotypes about blindness, and not from blindness itself. I have been very blessed. I had the opportunity to finish an edu my education. I'm married. I have two adult children both sighted. It's not their fault. God made them that way. <laughs> Love them anyway. My daughter has given me a perfect granddaughter. Uh, my wife is also totally blind. In addition to our children, we own our own home. We both have had very fulfilling careers. Partly through our efforts, and partly because of the efforts of countless other blind people who came before us and helped expand opportunities. Opportunities through legislation, opportunities through educational programs, adult rehabilitation programs, but first and foremost, opportunities by helping me and countless other blind people recognize that the limitations society assumes are artificial limitations. And through our individual and collective effort, we could live active, fulfilling lives. I pledge to you to do my very best over the next four years to help sustain the work that we have done and to expand on the work that we have done so that each year, because of the work of all of us and those back at home, opportunities for blind people throughout the world will be greater each year than they were the year before. Thank you for your trust and confidence. Thank you, Fred. And, uh I know I've been working for you for several years, and I, I know that we have got a very good president, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm very confident by Fred taking over um, the, the presidency of Verblan uh, Union. Uh, may I also, I know we are in the tea break already, but we also need to have a short report from um, the resolutions committee, I think. So, uh, Mark, are you here? Mark Maurer? No, we will come back to that. Um, there is one delegate who has lost 
her passport. So if you find a passport, please give it to the security in the hotel and it will be given back to the delegate. If you see a passport, if you have found a passport, please give it to the security and um, the, de the delegate will be very happy about that. Now we are going to have a tea break uh, and we will be starting at 11 o'clock. Thanks. Okay, we're at tea break. That was the first session of the World Blind Union General Assembly. So far, things are going the way we expected, are they not? Uh, yeah, things are running very smooth. I'm pretty happy about that. So for those who are not used to the process at the World Blind Union, I recommend that you take an opportunity to take a look at the Constitution. It's quite different than uh, North Americans would expect because the rules that we tend to use for meetings called Robert's Rules of Order are not the default rules of this organization. No, they're so not. you might have noticed that the presiding officer puts out a concept and invites people who are seated delegates of the organization to oppose his recommendation and then debate would open. But hearing no such call for discussion from the floor rather than taking a verbal vote they simply accept it as adopted again a bit different than people might expect but what you should expect throughout the rest of the proceedings here at the World Blind Union Quadrennial Conference in Orlando, Florida now this tea break is also a fairly large departure from what we're used to in North America anyway it's going to be 30 minutes in length. Uh, the delegates have been issued tickets to go to the next ballroom over to get liquid and, um, uh, what, solid refreshments? Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> there you go. drinks and snacks. And this particular tea break is going to be shortened a bit because they did go overtime into it. They right, so we expect them to be back on time. Yep. Uh, this early in any proceeding you try to stick to the agenda as much as you possibly can yeah but keep in mind we have a number of people here are new to this hotel uh you heard all of the different countries and they have a, a variety of capabilities of those delegates do not assume that because they came here from a great distance that they've had the opportunity to learn independent mobility the way that some of us are right. one moment somebody's trying to get my attention oh, we got somebody here Brian's getting this person situated. Uh, we're going to do a impromptu spontaneous interview. Can yeah, we do that, an Larry? impromptu interview. Okay, yes. Leslie, if you can let him. I'd like to interview you for our internet radio. Is that okay? No, this is Leslie, another member of our organization. But if she's going to vacate her seat, let you sit there for a moment. That's fine. If you don't mind me interrupting your tea break. <laughs> okay. 
I'm going to move my program out of the way so that we can share this microphone. We are on air with ACB Radio Interactive. Um, uh, actually, this is live event. Oh, pardon me. Live event. That's right. The live event channel. If you'll have a seat right here. Yep. I have joining me here, Mr. Kinga. Kinga? Say the whole name for us, Kinga. Chogyal. Kinga Chogyal? And he is from the nation of Bhutan. And are you representing your nation here at the WBU? Exactly. I heard when they did roll call that you were back quite a ways and not up with the B state, uh, B countries. Mm -hmm. Are you sitting back with the general membership? No, I'm sitting on my uh, own chair now. Ah, you're back in the correct chair. Very good, very good. So, is this the first WBU meeting that you've attended? Uh, Yeah, actually. Uh, I I actually joined back in uh, 2012, but that was as a part of the uh, ICVI. Ah, ICVI. Okay, very good. Because, what do you do in Bhutan? Uh, I'm actually a teacher by profession, and... I'm very, very happy to uh, announce here that uh, Mr. Brian Chelson, he was my teacher in teaching assistive technology for the blind and instructor course that was back in 2009. So I know Mr. Brian very, very well. He's a very, very good gentleman. Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence. Uh, this is WBU, World Blind Union. You had to travel quite a distance to get here. When did you leave home? I t- started traveling back in... From my own uh, station, I traveled back in uh, 11th of uh, August, and then I had uh, quite a lot of uh, official formalities to be carried out here in the capital of Bhutan in Thimphu. Then I started flying on 17th of uh, of August, and then I flew from uh, Paro to Bangkok, which is about uh, roughly four hours, then from Bangkok to Seoul, which is about five hours and 15 minutes. Then from Seoul to Detroit, about 11 hours, and Detroit to Orlando. <laughs> so it was <laughs> a long yeah. time. I hope you got a chance to sleep on the plane, uh, or planes, I should say. So are you the only one here from Bhutan? Yeah, I'm the only one, yeah. Okay. And uh, there are a number of other people who are here at this event who, like you, had an opportunity to come to the United States for part of their education in terms of adaptive technology. So I hope we get a chance to meet together. Yeah, us. Sure, sure, There's sure. a gentleman from Malaysia, gentleman from Vietnam, and a gentleman from Thailand. Okay. So yeah. hopefully we'll be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. So what? You were not at the last one, which occurred in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, did Bhutan have a representative then? Do you know? No. In fact, I was. I'm the first blind ever to be conducted uh, to be a member of the representative Bhutan because till date Bhutan doesn't have any association for the blind, and then today too I represent as a special member because Bhutan as a small nation having only seven hundred thousand of population, we have about just uh, two to three hundred uh, blind population, and then. Uh, Right now, it's under the Disabled Persons Association of Bhutan, so we have another GPU, and then we are uh, a small unit under that uh, organization. And I working under the National Institute for the Visually Impaired uh, School for the Running School for the Blind, so I had an opportunity to uh, represent the blind people of Bhutan. Well, welcome, welcome to this event. 
I think that you'll find it both interesting and there'll be opportunities for you to engage in discussion with your other delegates here. Thank Some you. from near your part of the world. I heard Nepal is represented. What other countries are closest to Bhutan? Nepal, uh, India. India is very close to me. Right. And then uh, we have a China on north. So a small yeah. nation with big neighbors. Exactly, exactly. Sandwiched between two nation, big nations. There you go. There you go. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you were able to, to join us here. Later on during the proceedings, I might ask you to come back again and speak to us about your observations, how this is different than you expected it to be, because no doubt there are different ways to uh, go through proceedings, different issues that might be of cons particular concern to your nation sure. and the blind people there. Yeah, yeah. Education being one of them. So I, exactly. I, I, I note that you're going to be here throughout the ICE VI yeah, exactly. proceedings as well? Exactly, yeah. Excellent. Okay, yeah. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much okay. for being with us today. Okay, okay. And, it, and Larry, I'll turn it back to you. All right, very good. That's uh, just uh, one of many people that have traveled here to Orlando, Florida, in the United States, from many different parts of the world. And there's all kinds of... Uh, issues that many countries unfortunately are facing that we have long overcome over uh oh, many years absolutely and yeah. quite honestly one of the things that we in the developed world as opposed to the developing world if i can use that description um we have to be careful because we can very easily slip back into some of those yes. processes if we do yes. not continue to advocate Yes, so absolutely. this gentleman was a student of mine a few, couple years back. He was funded by a variety of different international organizations to expand his knowledge about technology and chose to come to the Carroll Center for the Blind and stayed with us for, uh, I think it was three months uh, total, uh, and then returned back to his nation. And strangely enough, I was uh, later asked if I might be able to help provide some access technologies to his school for the blind. And I was in possession of a couple. In fact, you heard about it earlier here during the general presentation by uh, Mark Riccobono about the Kurzweil Reader uh, application that's now the size of a small app that you can put into your iOS or Android-based smartphone. Well, in those days, I had technology that was more the size of a suitcase that were earlier editions of the Kurzweil reading machine and I was able to send it on to Kinga in Bhutan through his one of his country's ambassadors to the United States. Larry, have you ever heard of an ambassadorial position called the Minister of Happy? No, I actually have not. <laughs> he was the ambassador of happy and huh. just that alone should tell you what the nature of people from Bhutan are. They're very friendly, yeah. outgoing people. That was, uh, that was like uh, Thailand, the land of smiles. Land of smiles, exactly. All that yep. kind of region of the world where they take pride in hospitality. Yes. So it was my pleasure to uh, offer my personal and professional hospitality to Kinga. And I expect that you'll be hearing, Larry, you might get kind of sick of it when it's all said and done, because there must be at least five other people here in the hall today who uh, experience the same kind of opportunity for training in the use of technology. I'm also very pleased to see how this program itself uh, honors technology and its role in the future of the lives of blind and visually impaired people. 
Uh, I see that it's actually on the agenda as a major topic for discussion. As you had mentioned earlier, many times at these events, um, people from the industrialized part of the world are shocked at some of the issues that people from the developing part of the world are dealing with. Not the yeah. least of which is that edu education question. Right, right. Here in this country, that is the United States, we talk about the quality of education. In much of the world, they're talking about access to education at all. More than 70% of blind and visually impaired children in the world do not have access to education at all. Yeah, not a part of, of quality, a matter of accessibility at right. all. Right, and part of education, a major part of it, of course, is reading and that's where the World Blind Union played a major role in getting that Marrakesh Treaty pushed through. So, joining us yeah. at the table again, we're going to keep doing this to our listeners, Larry. You know there we that, go, right? yeah. We course. have the president of the American Council of Blind, Kim Charlson, and yeah. her beautiful guide dog, Dolly, have just joined us. So, we're just talking about things. I'm going to turn the microphone toward you, Kim, and give you an opportunity to tell us your initial impressions of our first business session here at the WBU Quadrennial Conference. Well, it was quite efficient, and as you heard, um, we've elected a new president of the World Blind Union, and for the first time in history, that president is from the United States. It's Frederick Schroeder, um, and he is the new, newly elected president. He will assume his responsibilities at the end of this General Assembly for the next four years. So I am hopeful that we can touch base with Fred and get him over here for an interview sometime in the next day or so. Yeah, I expect that we'll great. do that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that'll happen, yes. Yes. <laughs> we have a <laughs> team of volunteers of <laughs> helping us get uh, people over here to the table to do these interviews. And even when there are breakout sessions, Larry, you and I are going to be going with our trusty digital recorders. Um. And I think at least you will. Bring of, some content back. Uh, yeah, there's to, a lot of stuff that's going to be going on in here that will be streamed live. So I'll Oh, yeah, you'll be that. here handling that part, and I'll be yeah. the intrepid reporter going elsewhere and bring it back to Larry for inclusion in our broadcast during the course of this weekend. On with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, these events are going to be replayed when the festivities are done for the day. Uh that's to accommodate everybody that's in all the different time zones, as mentioned. And also, we have the ACB events feed, where these archives will be posted, where you can subscribe to the feed with any podcatching device that you may have. And also, you'll be able to download it uh, manually from the ACB radio website as well. So there will be multiple ways of getting access to these archives as we move along. Now, uh, during the course of the morning's proceedings, we heard that there are going to be elections, and that is going to really be quite an interesting process to explain as it goes on. Unlike, again, much of what we've seen in the United States, Canada, and pretty much the uh, industrialized West, if you will, where... We do roll call votes and standing votes and these kinds of things. This is very much a secret ballot approach. They actually have it up on us, Larry, in the American Council of the Blind. Yes, they've been doing the secret ballot approach now for quite a long time. And I know ACB just started doing the secret ballot within the last uh, two or three years. 
There's quite a bit of preparation involved in this. Uh, as you heard, one of the offices, second vice president, has five candidates for a single office. And so the process they're going to have to do when those votes are first counted, it won't be the individual who gets the most vote out of the five. There's going to have to be at least one runoff election. I don't recall because I haven't had a chance to take a look at the Constitution uh, at this point to determine whether or not they drop off all but the top two candidates or whether they drop off the candidate that receives the least number of votes. But with a balloting process that requires that the delegates get a ballot, mark the ballot, put it in a sleeve, drop it in a box, those go off to a a group of counters who, again, we heard this morning, their names read aloud aloud, uh, over the microphone, that they will end up needing to uh, put those numbers together, report them to the General Assembly, and then move on to the next thing. So the very fact that we had only a single candidate for president may help us keep on schedule. Absolutely. And they were getting a little ahead of themselves because they were going to move on to the first vice president. And that's not on the agenda till tomorrow, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, you know, when you get to see an, an open scenario like that, it really does cause you to say, oh, maybe I can save some time now for use later. Yeah. And I'm sure that they will do that. But no, you gotta you got to adhere to the Constitution and bylaws. You, well, and you also you need to keep in mind that um, the organization did adopt an agenda and people should accept that as the rules of the land here so they can't get quite ahead of themselves now how do you think that the uh, language uh, scenario is going to be dealt with here can you explain that to our listening okay here's what's going to happen we of course have a couple of feeds Um, actually this year we have a couple of feeds Uh, we have the main feed coming from the audio board that's up by the stage and we will stay on that for the most part. If a presenter comes up and begins presenting in a different language other than English, I'm going to cut us over to the English translator so you know what's being said up there on the stage. Um, So we are going to carry all the English translations uh, here on ACB Radio Live event. They've got three translators here they have English, Spanish, and French, and everybody in the audience has a headset that's very similar to the assistive listening devices that uh, we use at uh, the ACB conventions. And you could select what channel you want to be on, depending on what language you wish to hear the presentations translated in. Now, WBU has three official languages, English, French, and Spanish. Right. There are certainly people in the audience who do not have that as their first language, but they do have one of these languages as their second language. Larry, how many languages do you know? I know not very many, probably about two. I know English and a little bit of Spanish, though I'm a little bit So 1.2? On yeah. <laughs> 1.2 languages? Yeah. Well, you have that. about point two ahead of me. But yeah. some of these people are amazing. Uh, I know that a number of the table officers speak three or more languages, that a number of the delegates in the room here will speak four, maybe five different languages. That doesn't mean that they're fully literate in those languages, but they certainly can communicate in those languages. So an individual is likely to be listening to the uh, translation into one of those three languages, and if they don't know any of those, probably they have a personal interpreter. And there are 
at least there have been in past years, a few delegations who have chosen to go that direction. If, for example, uh, the language you know is Arabic and you do not know English, French, or Spanish, then you would have to bring your own translator for that. It does make it for a very international feel, uh, kind of a UN kind of feel in the room. We will, I understand from speaking with people that most presentations, if not all, from the head table will be delivered in English as the kind of the lead language here. However, when there are calls for discussion from the floor, there will be individuals bringing wireless mics to those individuals. Yes. And they will frequently be speaking in their native tongue uh, and uh, meaning we're probably going to hear quite a bit in Spanish, quite a bit in French, um, and we'll be, as you put it, carefully switching over to the appropriate translator at that moment. Right. So, Should be kind of an interesting time uh, from absolutely. a technology point of view. Uh, how did things go over, Larry, when it came to the broadcasting of the two video soundtracks that the that went very Federation well. did? That went extremely well. The the uh, both the, the space launch. shuttle launch and the Daytona, I'll call it uh, the blind version of the Daytona, Daytona 500. 500. There you go, exactly. <laughs> um, now, if you had actually well. been in the room during the launch sequence, ladies and gentlemen, this room was vibrating. Yes. It's an excellent speaker system in this room. So it felt like you were at the launch site in the room. I yep. hope you did not have headsets on uh, during that process and was listening to it in an open speaker because the bass part of that was pretty amazing. Actually, you know, I grew up many years in Florida, so I've been to a few space shuttle launches and those are quite interesting. They make the body vibrate, don't they? Yes, they do. (laughs) It's amazing, truly amazing. And they were amazing stories to tell the delegates here. You know, when somebody, as I think uh, Mark Maurer said, when you try to figure out what is U.S. culture, because we are the world's melting pot, we have many, many cultures here. Now, I happen to be a big baseball fan, so I have no problem thinking of baseball as uh, a U.S. thing. But my friends in Japan might feel pretty strongly about the nature of baseball. Or for that matter, uh, let's see, maybe down in the Dominican Republic, they, they take some possession of the sport. So it's an international sport. But absolutely, I mean, when people talk about baseball, they know that it started here in the the U.S. of A. and uh, moved elsewhere and adopted as national sport elsewhere. Are you going to get on to that mechanical bowl, Larry? Um, I've been on them before, so it's nothing really new to me. I don't know if I'll do it this time around or not, depending on when it happens and what I'm doing at the time. I, I think I'm taking a pass on that one, Larry. The idea of being uh, ignominiously tossed from the back of a I've been uh, thrown from robot. horses, so I know what it's like to be thrown from. <laughs> I, I've, I've fallen off the genuine thing, there's no question. But yeah. to, to, to do that as a thrill-seeking thing, mm, not so much me. Not so much But me. that's something I haven't done in many years is horseback riding, and I really enjoyed that a lot um, when I did. I'm probably one of the few people you'll know that got his phys ed requirement for his college degree on the back of a horse. I took horseback riding as my phys ed requirement and uh, fell off more than once. But I have to yeah. say I did it appropriately. 
did Western style horse, you know, pole bending and oh, barrel yeah. racing and uh, some uh, some jumping as well. That is guaranteed to give you a spill from time to time. I rode one when I was growing up. I rode one that was a barrel racer. And we were riding through the woods, and he would think those trees were barrels, so he'd go tightly around those trees. And <laughs> yes, you've indeed. got a duck with those branches coming at you. Absolutely. And... <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I bet you there's a number of people in these delegations before us today who could identify with the rural life. I heard some pretty amazing names of countries there, some of which I didn't recognize. How about you, Larry? Yeah, there were some I didn't recognize either. Now, I'm sure that they are either one of two things. Either they're quite small in geographically geographically speaking or right. they've been renamed in our lifetime a number of the nations that you and i knew under different names right we don't necessarily recognize their more modern names. well yeah that's like with the soviet union breakup you know that kind of redid the map in that part of the world and of course the breakup of the of czechoslovakia yep. uh, of yugoslavia yep. in uh eastern europe but similar things have happened elsewhere i was found it interesting to see the number of uh well there's two countries here from what did they say uh ah, brazil not brazil it was in africa but there were two different countries because that country's i think currently under uh, some form of civil war yeah and so they're temporarily two countries rather than one and then, of course, we have other countries that have combined into single countries, such as Vietnam. Uh, right. And as I was growing up, it was North and South Vietnam, single now. There were some interesting uh, countries who were not present. Did you hear Korea? Um, I don't think I so. I didn't hear either North yeah. or South Korea. No. Um, I didn't really expect to hear North Korea, um, but South Korea, I thought, would have been here. And I, uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Belgium. Did I hear Belgium? Um, I think not. I don't remember Belgium either. I'm trying to remember if I heard Portugal. Yeah, Portugal, definitely I heard that okay, one. Okay, that one is so, there. But there, there are going to be, uh, what did they say, 99 nations seated here right. today. And 195 delegates Right, so m- yep. many of them have more than one, though probably a half of the people in the room are the sole delegate from their country, such as our friend Kinga from Bhutan. And then uh, this is the other thing that's a little different. The WBU allows for proxy voting. Within your nation, each organization has a vote, each organization that has joined the WBU. Okay. Hold on. They're just giving directions on when you come in. Yeah, they're just giving the logistical directions for exactly. the delegates on where they need to sit and that sort of thing. So, the again, they allow proxy voting here at the WBU. So prior to coming to the convention, you indicate to the international organization, WBU, that you're providing your vote to be cast by somebody who will be in attendance. Uh, Frequently, that means the individual that serves as the lead of your nation, but you're not required to do that. So, for example, ACB could give their proxy vote to AFB, for example, or vice versa. Now, here in the United States, I understand that we have every 
uh, member organization in the United States is present with the exception of the Blinded Veterans of America who are having their national convention next weekend. So they didn't feel themselves in a position to send a, a major uh, delegation here to this event. So they've passed their vote on to another member of the U.S. delegation. I'm not privy to who that person is, but that gives you some example of what will be happening here because I think they said the total number of votes when you take into consideration those present and representing uh, components of their nation but and those who are members at large, uh, those that are international members, those are organizations as opposed to individuals, the table officers. But even if you add all those people present in the room, there's going to be somewhere in excess of 70 proxy votes that will be part of that process. An interesting way to conduct business, making sure that all those who couldn't be here, many of which can't be here as a result of the financial obligations to do so, have nonetheless a vo voice here in the proceedings of the right. WBU. Make sure they have, you know, they have full representation. And we hope that those who can't be here live are listening to us today here on ACB Radio, American Council of Blind Radio. The presiding officer is working on making sure that delegates sit at their tables and their guides have to sit back in the back part of the room. This room is divided into delegate space in the front of the room. Uh, these are tables with uh, reasonably widely spaced aisles and seating. And then in the back half of the room, uh, rows of chairs for observers, and those observers include people's guides. Now, if your guide is acting as your language interpreter, then you are allowed to sit with the individual you're working with. But otherwise, many of the delegates here have come with sighted assistants, and those sighted assistants would be sitting uh, with the general folks in the back of the room. Probably two out of three people in this room currently are in the back of the room, and the rest are official delegates in the front of the room. It sounds like they're slowly getting back. As you would expect, the first tea break is going to be the most chaotic. We got to it a little late. Uh, not, not horribly so, but a little late. Uh, but they had to work their way out of this room, and they've only been in it for a couple of hours, through the crowds, out the door, turn to the right, go down a few doors, go back in another door, collect up your refreshment, consume it, turn around, and come back again. And everybody doing it at the same time. So I'm sure that we'll get to a slightly late start here, coming back from tea break. Uh, probably there'll be less and less of those delays as people become familiar with the space around them. Right. right. Speaking of familiar with the space around them, there's an interesting thing going on here that I understand is part of National Federation of the Blind convention culture, and that is they have individuals posted throughout the conference space who act as kind of verbal beacons. Uh, individuals standing out by the registration desk on a regular basis simply saying, registration desk over here, or general ballroom over here, these kinds of things. Now, I haven't heard it coming back from uh, tea break. Have you, Larry? No, I have not. I haven't heard that. <laughs> not at so all. I'm assuming that there's enough sighted assistance and blind assistance, for that matter, for those who know their way around uh, at this point in the game 
standing out there and helping people get from one space to another. Yeah, I remember in Thailand, the boy, the volunteers are right on you as soon as you walked out the room. <laughs> they they were heavily stocked with volunteers yeah. in Thailand. I remember uh, more than once being in a position where we were getting into a minivan and having a volunteer boost me by my seat, if you will, into my seat. Being very helpful, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like folks are starting to accumulate here. Yep. Uh, imagine they'll be getting underway very soon. It's after 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And what's on the program next, Larry? Do you have the program in front of you? I just had yeah. some snacks brought to me from tea break, so I'll let you know a little later how that works. I don't have the program on me right now because I was working on some level adjustments. Somebody's swiped mine over here, so I'm going to give a, a dive under the table and see if it's under there. <laughs> here, I've got it. Let me see here. We are coming back from coffee break. Heavens, I've got to turn the page. Uh, the, by the way, for those who are Braille readers, you might be interested in knowing how the Braille materials are produced here. Um, it appears that they're using UEB, Unified English Braille, but it is uncontracted Braille because many of those present, while they may know English writing, they've only seen it in uncontracted Braille in the past. So, again, here in the program after the 10.30 break, coming back at 11 o'clock and extending to 12.30, we have the um, second session of uh, general business. And we start with the report of the work 2012-2016 uh, and the chair of that group is Frederick Schroeder. Now, how do we know his name? Let me think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Newly elected President WBU. And also uh, so he'll he be was, speaking on that. I think he was the president of the North American region, right. too. Right. Yes. Well, no, uh, he was first vice president first vice of the president, WBU. Yeah. So he's still in that role at yeah, this moment. Yeah, that's true. That, that's true, too. So he'll be, uh, again, dealing with a report from that. And really, that's kind of the report from the table officers okay, as to the problems. Yep, trying to get people to sit down. Our second business session is now in order. Those of you still making your way in, please take your seats. Delegates have assigned seats, or I should say each country has seats for its delegates. There is not space for guides to sit with delegates, so please guides if you would sit with the observers and if you have an individual interpreter with you he or she of course may sit with you in the delegate section the international honorary life members are at the, the, the front right table okay if there are international or honorary life members the front table to the right of the of the aisle the right-hand table in the very front is reserved for honorary life members and international members. I'd like to begin with an item that is carried over.
from our previous session, and that is a report. If I may have your attention, please. I know people are still coming in. Uh, those of you near the door, if you would ask people to keep it down a bit. I think that's been resolved. I think so. All right. This morning uh, we had skipped over the report from the resolutions committee to offer that report. Please give your attention to Dr. Mark Mauer. Thank you, Mr. President or Mr. Chairman. The resolutions committee. <clears throat> Uh, President Arndt Holte has gone over the members of the Resolutions Committee. Resolutions are statements of uh, important policy that come before the World Blind Union. They may be presented by a country that is in good standing and they must be presented to the World Blind Union office by the end of today at 6 p.m. The Resolutions Committee will meet and consider them. <clears throat> they must be, rather than items that are hopeful or that you'd like to have, they have to be things that we can actually do. So, as an example, if you wanted to have a resolution recommending world peace, that's a good thing, but we're not in charge of world peace. So, we don't know how to do that. Uh, if you want to have a system whereby we have uh, a policy that we transmit books across country borders in a certain way, then that's a doable thing and we can accomplish that and we take a resolution with respect to that. The Resolutions Committee will meet to discuss the resolutions tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock. The resolutions that have been submitted so far are six in number. Uh, I have no idea whether they're controversial. I think one probably is. And if there are two resolutions that are essentially the same, the Resolutions Committee may combine resolutions. And furthermore, uh, if we've already adopted a resolution on the same topic and we're not doing something new, the Resolutions Committee may rule that it has already been established and uh, the form of the resolution is also to be determined by the Resolutions Committee, but they must be in writing and they must be uh, signed as an indication that they are from a specific country. That, Mr. Chairman, is the report of the Resolutions Committee. Thank you, Dr. Maller. <clears throat> At each General Assembly, we present a number of reports summarizing the work that has happened during the quadrennium. To begin, we will start with the President's report. The President's report will cover the activities from 2012 until the, president, until the present, excuse me. And to deliver the report, it is my honor and privilege to present to you our world president, our leader, and our good friend, Arndt Holte. I can go there, or I can stand, stand, stand. 
Thank you, incoming president. <laughs> There's something wrong with the microphone. It's, uh, is it too close? Or? There is it. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to give a report back to the General Assembly from the last four years. But I will also say some words about the situation for blind and partially sighted in the world and also link it to the general situation in the world. After the election back in Bangkok in 2012, we had a we had a, one of the table offices uh, got into uh, pro problems and uh, she had to withdraw from her position as the Secretary General. You know, something sometimes uh, that can happen. Your life situation can change your, um, uh, it can happen, everyone. And this time it was uh, my good friend, Rina Prasarani. Uh, she got those kind of problems and she could not serve as the Secretary General uh, in our table offices. And she had to withdraw. I think that was uh, very sad. And I really hope that uh, Rina uh, will have the opportunity to come back to our family and also that she will get chances to serve World Blind Union in the future. We need younger people, we need uh, women in our organization and we need uh, persons with capacity and uh, willingness to serve the organization. So I really think and hope that Rina one day, Rina from uh, Indonesia one day, can come back and be a part of uh, our family again and also take positions in uh, our organization. The world has changed since 2012. My feeling is that it is more insecure, it is more difficult to move around, and of course it, is, it has been more dangerous. And we are not living on an isolated island. So when the world is changing, the situation also for blind and partially sighted persons will change. For example, in Syria, the war has, go has been going on longer than the Second World War. A lot, of people, a lot of people are killed, and the situation to be a disabled person in that kind of situation, war situation, is very difficult. We need to find ways that also blind and partially sighted persons in such situation, in war, in disasters, emergencies situation, will be taken care of. And often it is the way that the last people who are getting support in such kind of situation, 
they are disabled persons. Earlier today, we heard about our good friend, Fra uh, good friend Francis Kandir from Uganda, who died in the, in the last term. Once I talked with Francis, I asked her, how has your day been today? She was working as a teacher up in the north in Uganda, and she said, today it has been good. It's uh, no fire here today. Yesterday was terrible. And having such people, blind and passive sighted persons, going out there, giving uh, assistance to others, risking their own lives in such situations, I, I really admire those of you who live in that kind of situation and working in that kind of sit situation. And that shows also that blind and partially sighted persons, we are taking responsibility, not only responsibility for ourselves, but also for other people. We are a part of the society, and then when the situation is changing, that will also affect us and our situation. We had a conference in Japan in Sunday um, some years ago, and uh, Marianne Diamond, who have been very active, active in uh, the International Disability Alliance, went there, and other people also went to this Sendai conference. And the topic for the conference was how can we secure blind and partially sighted persons in conflicts and disasters? I also had the opportunity to visit um, the World Congress of Deafblind in, in the Philippines, and that was on the same day this terrible uh, uh, typhoon uh, hit uh, the Philippines. And I saw how people were afraid and how they, they were taken care of, but also that the last one was disabled person persons and blind and sighted persons. Another thing we also experience, many of us, is new terror attack. And that is also a threat against blind and sighted persons. A lot of attacks has been done during the last four years here in this city, in Orlando, in my own city, in Oslo, and many, many, and many, many other places. And I believe that we can make a change because we have also to have dialogues and try to reduce the terror uh, and, and the uh, um, terror attacks around the world. And one way to do that is to talk more together and try to build dialogue. My belief is that also World Blind Union is a very important part of that dialogue. Not only blind and passive sighted, but also disabled persons. Because we also flag values, that is uh, to understand each other, be in dialogue, and be friends. And we need more of that in the future also to build down the terror, uh, terror and the terror threats. So we are not only an organization fighting for our interests, but we are also an organization and mo a movement taking care of the society, contributing to the society, and we are making uh, changes in the 
society. We are often talking about environment, shift in climate and so on. But we also need to talk about the environment in the society, the attitudes. They are also a part of the social environment. And our part in our work is also to improve and change the social environment. We, we are going to work for a better world to stay in and be a part of that. General Assembly is an opportunity to celebrate. We are going to celebrate a lot during these days because we have achieved a lot. Let me give some examples from our work plan. Of course, we can't be here without talking about Marrakesh and what we gained through our work in Marrakesh. I really admire the team working with the Marrakesh Treaty and the way you have uh, uh, got the treaty in place and also working with the treaty to get it ratified and come into effect. And it was uh, a, a day of joy when Canada, as the 20th country in the world, ratified the Marrakech Treaty, so it could, came into effect. Thank you, Canada. Yeah. But if we look into the Marrakech Treaty work, we have even more, there are more reasons to be proud. Because what we did was not only convincing uh, uh, and, and using uh, reasonable arguments. We also fight against the industry, the finance, and the copyright uh, legislation. And the copyright legislation is a part of the industry and is a part of the financial system in that uh, part of, of, of uh, the area. So we managed to move people to think of what, what is fair instead of money. And all of you know that to move people from thinking in money to something more valuable, it is very, very difficult. So I, I think we achieved through our work with the Marrakesh Treaty, uh, we achieved the access to books, of course, and it's not only Braille books, it's, uh, it, it, it is about accessible books, also for other groups. But we also got people to think of what is fair, what should people have the right to. Yes, people shall have the right to read and write. That is even more important than money. So I, I think we also, through our Marrakesh advocacy work, has um, also achieved something more than accessible books. We have achieved that there is a new way of thinking. But the fight is not over. We know that we need more countries to come into the Marrakesh world. We, we must uh, get more uh, countries to, to uh, ratify the Marrakesh Treaty so we can change the world. And of course, um, 
the big language areas are very important here. Uh, Spanish, French, English, Russian, Ar Arabic. All the language areas are, are important. And to, to build down the borders for accessible books will still go on in the next term of our work. I would also like to say some words about technology. And you know, technology is not about bits and pieces. Technology is about access to society. And the big gap in the future will be, will be between those who have access to technology and those who are not. And also those who can use technology and giving the chance to be trained in using technology and those who are not getting that chance. It's uh, funny to get iPhone 7, which is coming. It's funny to get uh, all kind of gadgets and, and, and so on. But the real thing with technology is access to society and also access to education and employment. So when we are talking about technology, we should also talk about technology as a tool to be equal and independent in the society, because that is all uh, technology is about. One challenge we have had, as long as I know, and I'm getting old, um, that is um, the very, very expensive equipment connected to technology for blind and sighted persons. Therefore, I think, and we are, we are not talking that much about World Blind Union as a hub where we can exchange information and start with initiatives that can uh, change the world. World Blind Union is not only an organization covering 190 countries and we are not only the General Assembly, but World Brand Union is also a hub where organizations can come together and we can start projects together. The low-cost Braille display project is a very interesting and good uh, example of that. The initiative from uh, RNIB, and I will, will specially uh, mention uh, the president of RNIB, Mr. Kevin Kerry, in this work, to find ways to reduce the costs of braille displays is very interesting. Because we have succeeded, of course, but it shows also a new way to cooperate. Sometimes it is not necessary to include uh, everyone to, 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 uh, to develop that kind of projects. It can be some organizations going together and developing a project which will benefit the whole blindness community. And the project of uh, the low-cost braille dis uh, uh, display is such a uh, uh, project. It's, it's not only the result, but it is also the way it has been done, which can be a kind of a model for the future. 
What we have achieved is uh, through this uh, work, this cooperation, to reduce the cost for a uh, 20 or an 18 cell braille display less than an iPhone. Of course, it's still expensive for many blind persons, but it's going down. And it would never have happened if we did not take this initiative ourselves. So I think technology is about training, it's about using technology, it's about reducing costs of technology. All these elements we have necessary, we have, we have, uh, we have uh, gained in this uh, project, and I, I think that is uh, interesting. <laughs> Accessibility to environment. One thing I have um, been very, very um, proud of and uh, felt very interesting is when I'm visiting United States, I have seen this kind of independence, this, this way to make people independent. We saw the astronaut today. We have seen the cars. But also this belief in being an independent person. Really believe that blindness should be not a hinder to be independent. I'm often saying that there is a big difference between saying, I would you like to take me out for a walk, or saying, I would like to go out for a walk, would you like to come with me? That is, that, that is the difference between being dependent and independent. So easy, so difficult. And I think this is very important, and I'm happy that we also can report back on the, in the plan that we have achieved a lot in the area of accessibility to environment. On the other side, this might also be the part of our lives which is most threatened in the future. One example coming up now, which we have been very active in, and uh, which uh, the first vice president has been very active, is the question of uh, silent cars. New threats to our lives is coming up. And we need to stay together and build everything we can do against that kind of threats. Silent cars are not uh, not uh, an advantage, it's a disadvantage, and we need to, to, uh, to really uh, have a victory on this, uh, on this area. To fight against silent cars is maybe the most important uh, issue in, in the future. My last point, dear delegates. I'm, uh, I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but I, I think this is also an opportunity to see new things. My, I, I believe in building alliances in our work. And I think we have been very successful with that through the last term. 
I can uh, put forward the, the example of uh, Interna International Disability Alliance, where Marianne has been the chair, and I, I had also had the opportunity to take part in some of the board meetings. I think if we shall success in changing the world, it's not enough to convince ourselves. We must also convince other people. We must also convince other groups. If we can do that, like we did in the Marrakesh fights, like we did, have done in, in, in uh, AIDA, I think we really can change the world and the world can be better, not only for blind and positive sighted per persons, but we also have the solidarity for other groups of disabled persons. We need to convince everyone about the, 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 that the better society for disabled persons and for others is the main goal and we need to build alliances. We have uh, the alliance with the uh, ICVI, which is very uh, visible uh, during this, uh, this uh, General Assembly. And we also have the alliance with the International Agency of Prevention of Blindness, and we have our Vision Alliance. We need to build alliances more in the future, and we have to be uh, very powerful in, in that work. But I will also say that we, when we are doing that, we must also say that we are not doing that only to um, point out the problems and everything for blind persons, but being a part of an alliance means also that we think that we have something to contribute with to other groups. Alliances is not only for blindness area, it is for a shift in the society and it is also in the solidarity of other groups. But never should alliances be a way to take rights away from blind and positive sighted persons. I'm going to end my report to the, Congress, to the General Assembly. Um, when I was standing here four years ago, I said I, I hope that World Brand Union should be more visible, more powerful, and that we also should uh, show that um, working globally means something locally. I mean, through our works, work and through those examples I have given, I think we have taken some steps forward. There are a lot more to do, Mr. Incoming President. We, we will never end that, that way. It will always be something to do. But I think we are in the right direction. I think we are working in the right way. And uh, I'm looking forward to see how we can improve in, in the future and how we can reach new more, uh, goals especially seeing that the so-called sustainable development goals. That means the goals which is adopted in the United System and which will be uh, the, the given direction of development in our national, uh, in our countries in the future. We have to influence on them 
We can do that, but not alone. We have to work to us, together with others. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Mr. President. As you can see, we have been very much blessed to have such a capable president over the past four years and to advance so many opportunities for blind people. To report on the activities from our world office, it is now my pleasure to introduce to you Penny Harton. Dr. Harton, as you know, is the Chief Executive Officer of the World Blind Union. Penny? Thanks very much, Fred. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's really nice to see you. Nice to, nice to see you all again. And it's really a pleasure for me to be here um, at our ninth General Assembly and to report to you on behalf of the WBU staff. It's, this is now actually the third assembly that we have managed since opening the WBU office in 2006, which is 10 years ago this year. And in fact, it's the seventh General Assembly that I have participated in, um, as my first ever assembly was in 1992 in Cairo. My things have changed. I'm joined here by four other staff members. They are Caitlin Reed, who's our communications officer and our Marrakesh um, project coordinator. And just so you know, Clayton's going to be giving evening workshops on Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday evenings, um, also assisted by Pablo for the Spanish, on the Marrakesh Treaty. Um, so please, I really encourage you to take advantage of that because there will be, you'll be able to get some very technical information about how you can implement, um, get Marrakesh ratified and implement within your country. Jose Vieira is our human rights policy advisor. Um, Jose works out of his home office in Argentina, and in fact, Jose is actually president of our national member in Argentina. Jose should technically be a delegate, but we felt that it was a bit of a conflict for him to be both a delegate and a staff member. So he's here in his role as a staff member. And his position continues to be funded by CBM, for which we are very, very grateful to be able to have this excellent um, representation uh, work um, resource to help us with that, with that work. Um, Jose is also going to be conducting evening workshops um, on the same nights as Caitlin, Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday. And he'll be talking about the sustainable development goals and the CRPD work. And I really hope that all of our members will take advantage of this resource. The, the workshops are on three evenings because they're doing them in English, French, and Spanish. And our, um, Abed Suleiman, our, our, our interpreter, Arabic, Arabic interpreter, has offered to interpret the English ones into Arabic as well. So we are able to offer these in, in four languages. So we really encourage you to take, take part. Um, Jose will also be planning to meet with as many of you as possible while he is here, just to talk about how he can support you in your work, in representation work at the, with the UN in your countries. Ianina Rodriguez, who you all know very well, um, has been the administrative assistant in our WBU office since 2008. 
Um, she was unable to join us in Bangkok, but you do have the opportunity to meet Ianina in person here in Orlando. Um, Ianina has really been the one that you've probably communicated with a lot regarding the membership issues, the payment of your fees, and um, that sort of thing. And Ianina's son, Andre, is also here volunteering his time for our members, um, for which we're really, really grateful. Andre is fluent in English, French, and Spanish. So uh, thank you, Andre, for coming with your mom to help out. <laughs> and all of you will have gotten to know through correspondence Maggie Leung, our GA Administrative Assistant. Maggie has been with us since last October and has been doing a wonderful job helping us with all of the planning and logistics that go into organizing such a complex event. Uh, you'll find either Maggie or Ianina in the WBU ICVI Secretariat Office, which the office is number 247 on the second floor, and they'll be there during all break periods. Um, so many of you have met them already, but um, that's where you can find someone, at least during the break periods. Um, so, and finally, uh, Miroslava Stadnik, who is a part-time communications assistant, who's been helping us with the website, particularly after we got the Open Society Institute Foundation funding um, for, for Marrakesh, we needed some extra help with the website. So Miroslav is actually back in the office helping us, helping us out and fielding calls from there. So as you can tell, we have a very small team, but everyone works hard to provide as much support as we can to support the work of the WBU and all of our members. This has been a very busy four years with us since the last General Assembly. As you know, following the last assembly, we helped to evaluate the effectiveness of the Joint Assembly, which we had conducted for the first time jointly with ICVI in Bangkok. And so based on that feedback, we, received, we began the process of planning another joint event this year in 2016. And and that's, that's busy with a joint assembly, believe me, it's, <laughs> it's very busy. Um, of course, we continue to do our normal activities of supporting our membership, maintaining membership information, managing the collection of the membership fees, uh, managing any communications, the website or social media, the e-bulletins, doing a lot, lot more press releases you'll have been seeing, so, um, supporting with all of the, the strategic and work planning processes, supporting the officers, the executive, the various committees and, and working groups. So most days we're not too bored. Um, in addition, we were very successful in receiving some key project funding. CBM funding for our advocacy and representation work is now in its fifth year which we're very grateful for. Thank you, Lars. <laughs> um, and CBM is an international member that provides that additional support to us. Um, the Trillium Foundation support for Project Aspiro uh, website ended in 2013, but we're still working very hard to ensure that the Project Aspiro remains current as a valuable employment resource um, for our members. And then our work with Marrakesh Treaty that we've talked about so much, that's enabled us to, to, actually, to have two major projects supported by the Open Society Institute Foundation, and you'll hear much more about that during the course of the General Assembly. So the office is responsible for developing and managing all of these projects, um, 
and, and working within that. Another milestone during this quadrennium was actually work with the, for Canadian government to ensure that we can adhere to the, to the, there were new Canadian regulations for not-for-profit organizations. And we were able to do that all within the deadlines and everything is in place in terms of all the reporting and, and so on so that we're um, um, fully um, registered legally um, uh, within Canada, which is what we need to be for operations there. So to operate an organization such as the WBU and to ensure that we have the resources to provide the needed support to our members, as well as to ensure that the organization is run in a proper way, we require significant support the assistance we receive from CNIB, which donates our office space and allows us to use um, all of their, a lot of their infrastructure, is extremely helpful to us and saves us a great deal of, of, of funding that we would otherwise have to pay for. We really appreciate um, those members who continue to provide additional voluntary contributions to, su to support our work. They're mostly the same organizations that help provide the funding to help open the office 10 years ago and they're still supporting us in a significant way to make sure that we can continue um, to, um, to, to keep the office open and to continue to, to support our work. It, is very nice, it would be very nice to see other members, though, coming on board um, for whatever size contribution that you would be able to make to, to add the support to those core sponsors. We appreciated those members who really made an effort to pay their fees and I have to say that we are disappointed that we have members who, despite a lot of effort on our part to work with them, to help them find solutions to meet the fee challenges, continue to neglect to pay those fees. So we'll, we will be talking about that in another, another session um, later on. Um, we, we've been successful raising funds for projects, as you know, but it is more difficult to raise funds from external parties for general operations. That is not unique to us. So we no longer have a fundraising professional on staff. We went through the budget crunch last year. We let that staff person go. And so I really basically do what I can in the time that I have to raise additional funds. It is very difficult to believe that it is now 10 years since the WBU office was established. I hope that all of our members feel that the investments that have been made to open an office and to have a few professional staff to support the work of the WBU has been a worthwhile investment. I'm, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I mentioned at the outset um, that this is now my seventh General Assembly, and I've attended um, um, the last three for which I've, I've had a major role in, uh, in planning the event. I should tell all of you now, because this is my opportunity to do that, um, because all of you are here, is that I do plan to retire before the next General Assembly. So this will be my last assembly with you as your CEO. It has really been my pleasure to work with and meet so many of our members. I'm incredibly proud of the progress that the WBU has made since I became involved so many years ago. And there's no question that we are one of the strongest NGOs involved in the field of disability around the world. That is a result of our shared vision and mission and all of the work that everyone does in all parts of the world 
to make a difference on behalf of blind and partially sighted persons worldwide. Before I conclude, I would like to express my sincere appreciation to all the officers for their support and advice during these past four years. You have worked very hard to ensure that we could achieve so many of our objectives. In particular, I want to thank our president, Arn Holte, for his leadership, commitment, and support throughout the term. And to our two retiring officers, Enrique and Marianne, who have served as officers since 2004. It has been wonderful working with you as well, and I know that we can and will continue to call on your knowledge and expertise. And a special appreciation as well to our hardworking staff, Caitlin, Jose, Ianina, and Maggie, who are here, and Miroslava, who's back at the office supporting us from there. My thanks to all of you for your hard work and commitment. Maggie actually finishes with us on September 9th, as her contract with us was just for the General Assembly. And it's been wonderful to work with Maggie. I only wish we had the funds to keep her. And, and And finally, my thanks to all of you for your continued support and friendship. I hope that I will have the opportunity to meet and talk with as many of you as possible over the coming days, and I look forward to a very positive and constructive General Assembly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. That uh, was an excellent report. Certainly we have done a great deal through our WBU World Office, but also, Penny, your individual contribution, your work as our CEO has been outstanding. You have certainly brought competence, technical expertise, a knowledge of the issues, but most important, you have brought heart and soul and a commitment to advancing opportunities for blind people everywhere. And certainly everyone in this room, as well as blind people worldwide, owe you a great debt of gratitude. Thank you for all of your service. So Dr. Harton mentioned resources. We don't have as much in the way of resources as we would would certainly like, but what we have, we keep track of very carefully. And so for a report on our financial accounts, I give you our very careful, our very thorough, our very conscientious treasurer of the World Blind Union, A.K. Mittal. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman, sir, for your kind words. Friends, the period under report, uh, 2012-2015, has been both exciting and challenging from the financial perspective. Exciting because we had several new initiatives during the period. Challenging since the, since the road ahead continues to be long and arduous. As before, our finances are administered most efficiently by our CEO, whom we have just heard, from uh, the Toronto office, Penny Harton, and your treasurer and the CEO have stayed in communication through email and occasional tele-meetings as required. The overall financial monitoring 
including review of financial documents, is undertaken by the Finance Committee. The committee held eight meetings and a couple of uh, tele-meetings during the period. The Finance Committee's recommendations were then considered and approved at our officers' meetings. This then is our finance-related organizational structure. We received happy tidings in January 2013 when NABP, on the initiative of our President Arndt Holte, made a donation of $100,000 to the union. The amount has proved... <laughs> the amount has proved most useful and serves as a shining example of how member organizations could contribute in a big way towards strengthening WBU's activities. Of course, almost all of our sponsors have also provided their valued support to the union by continuing to extend their committed contributions. DBSV from Germany joined us as a gold sponsor during 2014. We are indeed most grateful to the NABP and all our other core sponsors for their invaluable help. A special campaign of a bicycle ride from Barcelona to Rome was organized during 2013 to raise funds primarily for WBU's Right to Read initiative. A sum of $10,000 was received from the Wanda Pharmaceuticals subsequent to their presentation at the WBU executive meeting in Hurdle, Norway, at the invitation of our president. The Canadian dollar has continued to track about 10 to 15 percent lower to the American dollar for most part of the quadrennium. This is helpful as expenses incurred in Canadian funds actually cost us less. As regards documentation, annual budget and audited as well as internal financial statements were prepared and discussed in depth at the meetings of the Finance Committee and then considered and approved at the meetings of officers. The union had a clean and smooth audit all through these four years with no major recommendations or observations for the management. The audit had, however, expressed some concern over the decline in our unrestricted reserves, which we shall talk about shortly. In response to the decisions taken at the membership fee committee meetings, the CEO formulated revised and simplified forms for applying for continuation of fee relief for the coming year, and an updated and slightly modified set of guidelines for seeking membership fee relief. She also drafted a norm for determining which member could qualify as a small state. These were subsequently approved. Coming to finance-related committees, we have already spoken of the Finance Committee. We also have Membership Fees Committee, which discusses all matters relating to payment of membership fees, fee subsidy, etc. The committee had five meetings during the period. Fee relief of one kind or another was approved for 25 members plus 
two members were approved for such relief through email email vote due to rise in population eight members were also approved with certain conditions for sending increased number of delegates to this general assembly on payment of additional fee for 2016 the picture however is not as rosy as would appear from the foregoing we have had to close years 2012 2013 and 2014 with expenses exceeding income our unrestricted account which is directly impacted by our year end losses and surplus continued to decline for three successive years from 2012 to 2014 it stood at 186594 dollars as against 336690 dollars at the end of 2011 this continuous decline has been the subject of some concern from our auditors also as i had referred to a little earlier our accounts receivable statement for 2015 shows a sum of 102542 dollars as membership receivable fee for that year as against 92806 for 2014 this uh, receivable figure represents the accumulated amount of fees not paid by members during the last few years despite being invoiced in addition there are a few members whom we are not even invoicing since they had not been paying since 2008 or so this non payment immediately affects our overall results because a certain amount of this unpaid fee has to be written off and shown on the expense side which results in totally unproductive expenditure we have had to take some rather stern measures to check the erosion in the financial position of the union one staff position communications and fund development manager has been discontinued discontinued in 2015 and replaced with a part time arrangement as per decision of our executive meeting in 2014 the amount earmarked for ga support has had to be reduced from 50000 to 30000 for 2014 and 2015 and the facility of guides for officers from developing countries withdrawn save for cases where support is available from other sources thus we have been able to close the year 2015 with a modest surplus of $28,649 and our unrestricted reserves have gone up a little after 3 years at the end of 2015 and these stood at $217,429 at the end of 2015 many of our members have been contributing most diligently and regularly through payment of their fees and uh, as penny has pointed out i too wish to take this opportunity of recording our deepest appreciation for their valuable support i wish at the same time to make a twofold appeal to our defaulting members please look at the mounting membership receivable fees 
as a membership organization, your own organization, we expect and solicit full participation by all our friends through timely payment of their membership dues. Your timely contributions would strengthen your organization's international work and help it become a true voice of the blind and the partially sighted. My second appeal is for those to whom fee subsidy is approved. We try our best to work with members who might be experiencing difficulties in their fee payments. We feel rather disappointed, though, when some members either don't communicate with us or who still don't take any action, even when the Membership Fees Committee have made efforts to accommodate their situation. So we solicit your cooperation, please. We also need more members to come on board as co-sponsors. It's not fair that just a few are providing the additional support needed without which we would have difficulties. So we solicit more members to come forward and join us as core sponsors, as loyalty, gold, diamond, or platinum sponsors. If the membership fees payment and core sponsorship issues are not resolved by the organization, then WBU has the real challenge of uh, becoming sustainable into the future. Permit me, however, to conclude on a slightly more positive note. We have had considerable success, as Penny has also indicated, in getting funds for our earmarked activities. This is primarily because our CEO and her team have administered all of our projects with very high standards. We are developing a good reputation with our funders, which will make it easier for us with respect to future project proposals. Three project applications have been successful for 2016. These are our proposal to Wanda Pharmaceuticals for support to increase our communications capacity in the amount of $30,000, a two-year project to support the ratification and implementation of the Baracus Treaty approved by FOSI, Human Rights and Advocacy Project approved by CBM for an annual budget of $74,000. Uh, we are also looking forward to the interaction with the WBF, which will enable the WBU to join together and uh, we'll have uh, WBF programs and assets onto the WBU establishment in near future. This is an exciting development and we are looking forward to this collaboration. But these are all project-based funds. We have to mobilize greater resources for running and diversifying, diversifying our core operations. This then, friends, is my brief report. However, I would uh, deem it my most pleasant duty to express my sincerest thanks to our CEO, Penny Harton, and her team, who have not only put together the figures 
which have been circulated amongst you but more importantly they have managed all our financial matters with commendable skill and dexterity ranging from preparing all financial documents to managing the yearly audits and looking after other administrative issues of financial nature and projects i'm sure all our friends here will join me in saying a big thank you to penny and her team i am also most grateful to our president aunt holte and our first vice president and now coming pre- president incoming president fred schroder for the advice and guidance they have been providing to me in my work ladies and gentlemen uh detailed financial figures about uh, the quadrennium have already been circulated i do not want to inflict these uh, details upon you here but if you have any questions i'll be happy to respond thank you very much thank you very much ak procedurally what we'll do we have one more report and then we will open the floor to questions after questions have been raised then i will ask that the four reports be accepted So for our next report, our membership report, I again turn the floor to our CEO Penny Harton. Let me get through here. All right. Let me just adjust the microphone. Hold on. All right. Okay, thank you thank you very much. Um I want to report to you on changes in membership. Um we're very pleased that we were able to welcome five new members during the quadrennium. Tonga from East Asia, South Sudan from Africa, Djibouti from Africa, Macau as part of the Chinese delegation, and Bhutan from Asia. as a special member we also welcomed one new international member international guide dog federation with respect to our our um we have two inactive national members singapore and latvia who have they're still on our books but they've basically suspended their their membership for a time and obviously that's something that we'll want to continue to work with them on um we've had a few international members that have discontinued their membership um because of non-payment of fees over a lengthy period of time arab union of the blind inclusive planet and lighthouse international have all been discontinued as international members um through through non-payment of fees we have one new associate member um remod remod associate member from the central african republic and there have also been some associate members that have been removed um during the period if they have 
defaulted on their fees for a period of uh, four years. So our total membership, to give you those statistics, we have 164 national members, of which two are inactive, and of which five are special members. The number of countries being represented currently is 179. It's different because the Caribbean Council of the Blind represents um, 15 countries within the, uh, within the Caribbean as a special group member. So that's why the number of our actual uh, number of our national, national members is different from our, um, the actual number of countries that we're representing. Um, of, our, of our total um, um, members, just for your inf information, uh, 44 um, are non-financial of the uh, country members. International members, um, we have 13 international members, of which two are currently non-financial. We have 23 honorary life members, and we have 16 associate members. So that concludes the membership report. Thank you, Penny. At this point, we will take questions. You have heard the report of the president, the report of the CEO, the report on the financial accounts, and the membership report. If you have questions or comments, please stand and say your name, and a microphone, I believe, will be brought to you. Are there questions or comments? Questions or comments? Okay, who, please say your name. This is uh, Mapopa Shava. Yes. From Malawi. Once again, good morning. Good morning. Um, I am more interested in um, what was previously said about uh, the Constitution. I think there was a time when, due to Constitution elements, one was dropped and so on and so forth. Uh, it's not actually a, a, a question, but a request, rather. I don't know how countries, including Malawi, can access uh, copies of uh, WBU constitution, um, more especially in Braille, because uh, we may... Google to find out whatever is there using our WW whatever. But now in copies in Braille, I don't know how we can have access to to, to that. Mr. President Sam or Mr. Facilitator Sam, thank you for recognizing me. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. Do either of you want to respond? Otherwise we will refer that uh, request and comment to our to our world office and see what what arrangements can be made. Anything you want to say? Um, yeah. well, we, 
Uh, just a moment. I think Penny, are you going to address does he, this? Does he mean for this meeting, or does he mean? Oh, just let, let me ask uh, for clarification. Are you talking about Braille copies of the Constitution for this General Assembly? Um, if there are some for this General Assembly, free and innocent to do so to share with us. But then I was um, requesting for the uh, Constitution for the organization as such. Um, yes, for the general constitution of the, 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 the union. Okay. Eh? All right. Uh, yes, for the WBU, not for the, the general assembly. Yes, you can provide to us. But uh, I was asking for that one, the major one. All right. We, we certainly can look at uh, what we may be able to do after this assembly, but we do not have the uh, Constitution available in Braille for this assembly. It is available, of course, on the website. Other comments or questions? Please uh, stand up and say your name. All right, just a moment, the microphone will come to you. Um, this is Mohammed Krubali from the Gambia. And I have heard the report by the CEO, Penny Hutton, and thank you very much. Um, the comment I really want to make is this. Although we have understood very well that uh, by virtue of the advent of technology that uh, now visually impaired um, people can access certain information via internet, um, but obviously this is often proven very, very difficult sometimes, especially in the developing countries in Africa. Like in my country, the Gambia, um, sometimes we do get internet connections um, from the internet service providers that is subject to payment every month. And sometimes uh, by virtue of the fact that fundings are not available, you will not be able to get uh, this connection. So in order to support the question of uh, um, the gentleman from Malawi, he's my roommate of course, I hope in order to achieve accessibility in terms of information, since the fact that visually impaired usually use braille and that of uh, computers with speech synthesizers, in as much as we can obtain some of these informations, um, by virtue of uh, the availability of speech, in, uh, speech synthesizers from internet, it will also be ideal for the World Blind Union to look into the issues of making sure that certain information you know, that are being available can also be presented to certain national organizations, maybe through AFU. Oh, I also want to make another recommendation that uh, the fact that we also have other embossers available for the WBU to um, launch um, sort of a project that can also provide all the organizations, including um, organizations in the developing countries to make sure that we have uh, Braille embossers within our own organization to make sure that even if um, the fact that countries are very much far um, from WBU headquarters in Canada, but if we have launched a special program or project in which Braille embossers 
will be available for national organizations then if these informations are being um, obtained from the website then the national organizations as well can use these braille embossers in making sure that they are also accessible by virtue of braille communication even the fact that they are not available in soft copy thank you very much thank you uh, yes uh, president holter thank you so much and uh, thank you for this underlining of that braille will never disappear technology can never techno technology can never be a, um, something which is taking over the Braille production or the need of Braille. As I said earlier today, the most important victory we have had was the Marrakesh Treaty, which opened the borders for Braille books. And we will always need Braille, and we also need um, different organizations being involved in producing Braille all over, uh, all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, and Europe, wherever we go. So technology is not instead of Braille, technology is in uh, addition to Braille. And those who, who think that if you have access to technology, you don't have to learn Braille, they are wrong. You need always... you need always uh, access to Braille. So let us be, be agree that uh, technology is important. It is important to get access to it, and it's important to reduce the price for it. Uh, it's uh, important to have uh, co uh, low-cost Braille displays, so you can also read Braille there, but it will always be a need of producing hard copies of Braille, and we should also uh, motivate uh, uh, donor organizations to set up Braille uh, printers around. But, my friends, it's not only a question of having Braille embossers located different places, I have seen some Braille uh, embossers not functioning around the world. So it's also uh, important to have support for repairment and, and also access to paper and uh, also uh, um, using the Braille printers uh, which are already are, are in place. So let us do this together. Thank you, Mr. President. Other questions or comments? Please stand up, say your name in a microphone will come to you. Hey, bonjour à tout le monde. Moi, je suis uh, Nyang Jean Sanyan. Je suis uh, oh. délégué de... I am a delegate from Conakry. Uh, Guinea-Conakry. I want to thank all the persons, the people who participate in this national, uh, General Assembly. It's a privilege for me to participate in this uh, Assembly. It's a very good experience. It's a very... It's, it's really very good to see that all the languages are spoken, and I am part of this Assembly. I am a teacher. I work with the uh, Education Ministry of Guinea. I listened... With I've I've listened to all the all the people who have talked this morning during this uh, assembly. 
First of all, I would like to congratulate the uh, CEO of this assembly. I see this is an iron lady. Uh, just the way she talks, she seems to be so honest and direct. Uh, promote Braille is a very good thing for us developing countries. I'm not going to say poor countries. I'm going to say developing countries know that we are in, we have issues to reach our objectives, our goals, because we do not have the equipment for Braille. The equipment for uh, for uh, blind is not accessible for everyone, for every country. I can tell you that in Guinea, I am the only one in in the country who has a watch in Braille. Why? Because uh, the other people cannot afford it. You must have a bit of uh, you need people who <laughs> give you gifts or help you financially. I hope we're going to do a lot, but we still have a lot to do. I am trying to get the attention of the new president of the union to think about those countries, developing countries, to bring support. And I also would like to recommend this it is good to be together and gather every four years, but I don't know if there is a network, a social network, that ex that is that is an ex that is here that where we can keep on communicating as a family, like maybe some social media or something we could use and keep communicating after we leave here, so we can keep on communicating uh, among each other. For that observation, there are mechanisms uh, that can be used to continue the discussion. The World Blind Union table officers uh, include the, the elected officers that will be electing during this assembly. The broader term officers includes those elected officers as well as the regional presidents. And then we have the system of the executive committee that is all of those individuals plus three additional representatives from each region. So we certainly will continue the discussions and, and uh, try to address all of the issues that come before us as a world organization. At this point, we have heard four reports, and since we are short on time, I don't want to limit discussion, but Please, if, if you could address any questions or comments specific to these four reports, then we can take action on them. Are there other questions or comments? Please stand in. A microphone will come. Um, yes, morning. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm Salal Mahat from Hi. South Africa. Uh, we appreciate the good reports that we have received um, and uh, we have, that we have received the, a brief about and uh, my point is about international cooperation we understand that um, we are living in different countries at different levels of development and uh, we are happy to hear about good work in uh, highly developed countries and um, we know 
um, the, the, the international uh, funders in the field of disability uh, that are also contributing in, uh, in developed countries. But we want to encourage uh, uh, all uh, developed, uh, developed countries, uh, especially uh, the blindness sector, it could be organizations for or of the blind, um, to have an influence on their uh, country international development aid uh, funders to ensure that um, uh, the, the blindness sector benefits in, in developing countries. Coming from SADC, as a block, uh, we, we, we have decided that we want to uplift each other and we'll be engaging in, uh, in, in some projects. So we appreciate uh, countries like the Nordic countries because we have seen the, the intervention from that angle but uh, NFB and uh, America and, and other countries that have developed, and we, we appreciate the level of development that you are doing internally in your countries, but we also encourage you to want to see you also contributing uh, in developing countries so that you don't only develop alone, but you develop with the rest of the world. Thanks. Uh, thank uh, you. But we don't have, um, what is this? The equipment for interpreting, I'm not sure how are they distributed, but from our table we don't have. The uh, interpretation headsets are available in the hallway just outside of this assembly room. And if you are registered as a delegate or observer, uh, guide, accompanying person, if you're registered for this assembly, you can go to that table and there is a procedure for receiving an interpretation headset. Uh, we are short on time, but if there are other comments or questions, please stand and identify Hello. yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is uh, Chen Yang from Hong Kong. Yes. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I managed to get an emergency visa and came over, so very great. And to hear Fred's uh, speech, acceptance speech, so that's uh, very... Uh, pressurable. Now, I, I want to ask a question relating to um, um, on uh, the president's report on uh, international development on the sustainable development goals and their relationship with our work. So uh, I believe that um, because of the sustainability development goals adopted by UN last year, uh, there will be more resources in development. So the work to get more development resources to support uh, our work should be one priority for the next um, executive committee, I feel. So that, that's uh, point number one. Uh, Another point about international issue, uh, as Andy pointed out, that the world is getting very insecure. Um, I wonder if World Blind Union in any way can pay attention or make a connection to the issues of um, any refugees who might be 
visually impaired or services in camps or for migrants,、uh, which to me sometimes is a big issue, but it's an issue that is quite unknown to us because it's not made in mainstream news. Thank you. Thank you, Chen Yao. To your first point, well, really to both points, there will be sessions、uh, dealing with development, dealing with refugees, and so you will get further information. I I know there are others、uh, who would like to comment. We have run over time. Are you all content to adopt the four reports? And people who have additional questions, if you could seek out. Either the president, CEO, or treasurer separately to address your questions—is that acceptable? All right. Is there a motion to accept the reports? All right. It has been moved and seconded that the four reports be accepted. All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Are there any opposed? The reports have been accepted. Please don't leave yet. We have a few announcements.、Uh, for the first announcement, I will call on Penny Harton. You wanted to make an announcement about this evening. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you.、Um, you will see in the program there's a women's networking session that's taking place this evening. It says in your program it starts at 6:30. It will start immediately as soon as we can following the end of the day today. It will start at 6:15 because of other commitments. We welcome all women who are here to attend. Unfortunately, we do not have simultaneous interpretations. We apologize for that, but we do welcome all women at 6:15. The The room number is, I think it's eleven and twelve.、Um, I'm sorry. Yes,、uh, the, the room number is salon eleven and twelve on the second floor. So we hope that all women can join us at six fifteen this evening. Thank you. It will be for one hour. We will be finished by seven fifteen. All right. And Stephanie Eller has <coughs> has、uh, another announcement. The Canadian National Institute for the Blind and the Canadian Council of the Blind will be holding an event tomorrow, from 6:30 to 8:30 p.m. in Salon Three, Level Two. We welcome everyone to come for a taste of Canadian culture. There will also be an exciting door prize. Again, that's 6:30 to 8:30 in Salon Three, Level Two tomorrow evening. Thank you. No other announcements. All right. In closing, let me just remind you that there is an express lunch option. It is next door. It is twelve dollars U.S. That includes your lunch and tax and tip. There are many other meal venues within the hotel and nearby the hotel, but that certainly is the quickest and probably the the most cost-effective. Thank you to all of our presenters for these very excellent and informative reports. And with that, our second general、uh, session is adjourned.、Uh, may I have your attention, please, ladies and gentlemen? Can we settle down now, and、uh, we shall then start our afternoon session proceedings.
Okay. Welcome friends to plenary session three of our General Assembly. I am your colleague A.K. Mittal from India, Treasurer World Blind Union and President All India Confederation of the Blind. I have the honor of being your chair for this session. The theme of our uh, plenary session three is universal design, accessible travel, transportation, and tourism. Permit me to state that the theme forms part of strategic objective three of priority three of the WBU work plan 2013-2016. There are four initiatives or work areas under this objective, and these form part of the presentations in the current session. We have three topics listed for the session, and we have two distinguished speakers. So without any further ado, let us start with our first speaker, who is Mrs. Martine Abel. Williamson, who is the leader of this objective of our work plan and also chairs the working group constituted to carry forward initiatives listed for the purpose. Originally from Namibia and South Africa, Martin lives in New Zealand and is an executive member of the WBU AP region and chair of the region's women's committee. In New Zealand, she is working for the largest local government agency from across Australia and New Zealand, namely for the Auckland City, where her role covers providing specialist advice in the areas of universal design, barrier-free environmental design, inclusive employment, and accessible transport services. It's the only community law center in New Zealand that specializes in disability law. This complements her current role at WBUAP level as regional UN advocacy network coordinator. She is involved in modern shared spaces design, research projects in the fields of access travel. Martin will speak to us this afternoon on the topic shared spaces, how we can travel safely in the same space alongside cars. You have the floor, Martin, and you said you will be speaking to us for about 20 minutes. So all yours, Martin. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Shared spaces are not a new concept. In fact, prior to um, vehicles becoming more and more popular on roads and travel by higher speeds, ancient road areas were shared by people and vehicles because there were, for instance, horse carts and people traveling by foot at the same time. So not until vehicles sped up and safety became an issue did we artificially separate the areas between where vehicles travel and pedestrians. Acknowledging shared... 
I'll just try to get rid of the sound. Um, acknowledging shared spaces are found more increasingly in town centres where vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians share the same level surface and also taking into account that these areas can be designed and constructed in an accessible way. The World Blind Union has tasked us to come up with a position paper. We have actually at yesterday's EXCO meeting adopted a policy paper on shared spaces. If you look at the presentation, this presentation on the website, it will still say that we are in development because I didn't want to um, guess what the meeting would say yesterday. So on the website you'll find at the moment this presentation and in a few months' time, and we'll remind you, you'll find our policy paper because we realise that um, it's quite a technical area. So we designed the policy paper for you all in the area of planning, design, construction, monitoring of the behaviour of users, as well as enforcement of design principles of shared spaces. Now, the definitions, there's a number of them. In the UK, um, the one we took from there is a shared space is a street or place designed to improve pedestrian movement and comfort by reducing the dominance on, on motor vehicles. So although many people think that shared spaces are designed for vehicles, it's actually designed for people. Another um, definition um, that also helps us understanding this better is that a shared space is described as a low-speed residential or retail street where the typical curb that distinguishes between the road as the traffic's priority and the footpath or sidewalk as the pedestrian's priority is absent. Now, of course, that um, sort of can confuse people, but that automatically learns, um, leads to vehicles driving s slower because people would enter a shared space and they won't see um, where uh, the curb is. But of course, although this is in general beneficial to pedestrians and vehicles, we have experienced that blind and partially sighted people can of course lose out if there's not a curb. So, and we also know that the queues that are there, that you get to a ramp or a curb if it's not there, or um, warning tactile indicators, what would tell you that it's there? Now, when you look at the website, our presentation, at this point I've um, inserted some URLs and also click, um, websites you can click on. So that would take you to some of the documentation if you ever need to reference it for further details. It should further be acknowledged that shared spaces, when designed in an unsuitable and unsafe way, can actually become life-threatening zones. And some of you have raised that at country level, so we want to acknowledge that. So, um, eye contact between pedestrians and vehicle drivers help to distinguish and to signify to each other who's moving when, but of course, Blind and partially sighted people will lose out on that informal, non-verbal way of communication because you can't just do a wink and a nod and cross the road at any stage. So um, that is something that can't be planned because it is, it is quite instinctive to have that eye contact. 
So let's start with the aims of a shared space. Why bother with shared spaces? Is it just the in thing to do? So the main reasons for developing a shared space is to um, improve pedestrian, pedestrian amenity, increase social interaction, reduce motor vehicle dominance, reduce vehicle speeds, creation of a flexible space, improve economic activity and revitalization. And of course, when we look at planning and implementation principles, these are the most important. If people can adhere to these, then the development of the shared space will be successful. The first principle here is ensure stakeholder engagement from the conceptual stage. So we're not just saying to a local government agencies, build it and then see if we can walk on it, but include local blind people, mobility instructors, business owners, and everybody to see what do you want in that space, because it's meant to be a cultural and inclusive area. <coughs> Secondly, maintain that stakeholder engagement during the implementation and future planning phases, because you may find that people want something else, or pedestrians or business owners want change. So you want people to remain in the loop. The next principle is to provide an education program. Teach people how to work and how to deal with a the, with the shared space. Then ensure, this is at more legislative level, ensure that the definition of a shared space and the expectations of users are actually included in your country's road code. So make it formal. Monitor the implementation. We all know that enforcement can often be the downfall because no one checks whether anything has happened correctly. Publicise and research it. So we all know that in five years' time, there'll be another design that's the end thing. So, so monitor the shared spaces. Now we're getting to design principles. Now, these are very technical. Um, I'm sure that the last thing after lunch you want to hear about what should be 600 millimetres wide and two metres narrow and or that sort of thing. So the, the specifications are all on the website and without me taking you through a space to have the honour to demonstrate it to you, I'll very broadly go across these but know that they are detailed in, in our new policy as well as in this presentation. Firstly, a shared space should be an inviting space. You're not going to have a back alley with a lot of rubbish and high-rise um, um, buildings. I mean, you, you won't get pedestrian amenities there. So have the space inviting. People must want to drive and walk there. Make sure the space is big enough, but not too long. The moment you have a long space, people want to speed up in vehicles. Then make sure that on both sides of the shared zone there is what we call a continuous accessible path of travel. And I say the capped, or I'll just say the path of travel. That will be what we would traditionally see as the footpath part. And we prefer that to be not narrower than two metres. No obstruction should be in that, and of course we advocate for that. And don't have many uh, level surface texture changes because, of course, we want that way to be accessible to people with uh, physical impairments as well. 
have the, have the shared spaces signed sufficiently. Put down, for instance, speed um, maximum of 10 kilometers per hour. Put down for pedestrians to still watch for traffic before you cross, although you have the cross, the right to cross everywhere. And in some countries, you may even want to have a sign about pedestrians having the right of way. I know in some of your countries, pedestrians have the right of way anyway. So we're looking at uh, one of the other ex examples here is, is also consistency of uh, approach. So when the shared space finishes, make sure that, you so that your queues go back to ordinary uh, signage, for instance, to be a curb, a ramp, parking, so that people know they're now outside the shared space. Make sure that there is not color, too many color contrasts, unless it's going to guide you maybe to a shop, like an inviting uh, paving to a shop. But the moment, the moment you have too many color contrasts, people going, especially yellow, people are going to see it as a tactile indicator to cross to cross the road. So how would people know that they get to the, to the crossing, or what we say the part that is now open for people and cars, is we call it a tactile delineator, which is the 600 millimeter strip, a tactile strip that you have on both sides of the shared zone. So that, that strip is not colored, because if you color it, contrast it, people will just see it as pedestrians this way, vehicles on the other side. So it's basically tactile. You feel with your feet or your cane that it's there, and you know that if you're going to continue, you'll be in the shared space. And with that in mind, we do not have warning indicators or tactile indicators, other ones, because if you could cross anywhere, that is your right of way. So unless you want to guide people to a specific shop or seating area, then you would use the, um, the tactile indicators. But otherwise, you just have the tactile delinear strip on both sides of where the shared space is. Then also to do with, with plantings and um, things such as seating, that is welcome in the shared space because this, remember the shared space are for people to relax in it, for there to be plantings, for people to have outside dining facility. Just make sure that it doesn't encroach the tactile delineator as well as the accessible path of travel. And when you design accessible seating, make sure that the, there is backs and armrests so that people can push themselves up onto it as well. So I know this is, probably sounds quite, quite technical and I, and I won't spend too long on, the, on these aspects, but you know, so it's, it's really, it should be a flexible space. In other words, in some areas they can put on almost a music concert on the side, or um, hot dog stand. So it is meant to be a shared space as long as the areas we want to use is unobstructed. Include signage throughout the shared space. Sometimes people would say, I didn't see this, the speed sign. So again, just a final reminder to, maybe later on it won't be necessary because driver behavior change and we adjust but that is probably worth noting. 
Now, sometimes, of course, those of us who, who use guide dogs, our guide dog handlers, it is, I find with my dog that he doesn't just want to cross anywhere because he's sort of looking where to cross. But because I ask him to find the crossing, he will find the closest part of the delineator that is not obstructed. So again, you may find with a dog that it's sort of trying to find a pole or something that it looks a bit more traditional as a crossing point. So again, it can take some time for, for even for, the, for our guide dogs to get used to that everybody cross and it's basically almost in, in theory open season. Then cyclists are a huge issue. Uh, some of your countries have got very specific ways in making um, footpaths or roads accessible for, for, to include cyclists. So what we've included here is to negotiate. So although I think intuitively we want to say do not have cyclists, especially if it's um, contra-directional in the shared space, but again, we didn't want to be too prescriptive. So if people think that as long as there's not bike stands in the way of where you're going to travel and that people can listen out for them as well as cars, then they can be in there. But remember that everybody needs to slow down and it's rather safe than sorry, so it's, it might be suitable, as we did in New Zealand. Uh, three of our central city shared spaces do not allow for cyclists, whereas one does. So we're having a bit of a trial to see, to see what happened. And in the end, monitor the zone. Whatever you do, monitor the zone. Now, on the site, at this point, on our website, you'll find a visual demonstration, and I, will, I want to refer you to that. In your own time, we've got photos, but it's an accessible Word document. So the four sets of photos, what they will show, they will describe the before shots and after shots of four shared spaces, because people do say, I see a shared space, but what did it look like beforehand? Or people would say, what area may look suitable to change into a shared space? So on the website, we have Auckland Central Business District, Ford Street, Elliott Street, Jean Batten Place and Derby Street. Some of them were one lane, lonely little roads with car parks and rubbish bins and high-rise buildings. Others were basically uh, just a through road where, where cars just took a shortcut and made a rush through it and pedestrians get a bit of a fright because they thought it's a quiet area. So it's areas where there wasn't much activity and we wanted to make them welcome. So, and just a reminder, uh, what we've done on the website when we put up this presentation is um, I've done it in yellow on a deep blue background and realised that, of course, if you're going to print it out, um, it may show up as yellow on white. So just if you're, one of, if you're people who like to print it out, out and then look at it, please remember to change the background, otherwise you'll think it's actually a very inaccessible um, Presentation, but on online we've got it with decent um, with decent background contrast. Remember, if you print it out, that you may want to change the settings. And of course, you'll find the four photo sets here, plus the descriptors of what they used to be. Thanks. In conclusion, it should be emphasised that 
if sufficient engagement with local stakeholders are not going to take place or you're scared that it won't take place, it might be the safest way for the blindness sector to advocate for those spaces not to be installed. Also, the general purpose should be remembered. You don't want a shared space just because it's modern and someone else is doing it. It should be really something cultural and safe and lovely for you in the community to, to enjoy together. However, shared spaces can be designed in a safe and accessible way in our communities. If true, staker in, in, if true stakeholder engagement is being incorporated right through the process, and the process is not to ask for forgiveness the process, and, and forget about permission. The process is right through from concept identification, planning, design, implementation, monitoring, enforcement, as well as future learning stages. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, I have an interesting anecdote to share regarding shared spaces in developing countries. I'll hold it back, however, for the present. And maybe in conclusion, if we have time, we'll just share that. Our next speaker is Dr. Frederick K. Schroeder. Fred has many and varied accomplishments and contributions to his credit. He is the first vice president currently of World Blind Union and, as we know now, our incoming president. Fred was the founding president of the International Council on English Braille and is an internationally known expert in Braille literacy. He was the first director of the New Mexico Commission for the Blind and, in 1994, President Clinton named him to the position of Commissioner of the Rehabilitation Services Administration within the U.S. Department of Education. He is a long-time leader of the National Federation of the Blind in the U.S. Most recently, he served, the federations, he served as the Federation's first Vice President and has led a number of uh, Federation's major initiatives. As a research professor in San Diego State University, Fred is a nationally and internationally recognized expert in the areas of special education, adult employment, and independent living services for blind and visually impaired individuals and others with disabilities. For the past five years or so, Fred has served as the World Blind Union representative to the, to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. He represents the World Blind Union on the Quiet Road Transport Vehicles Working Group. Fred will speak to us at this session on the topic Quiet Vehicles, the Silent Danger, Driving Safety and Access Issues. Fred, it's all yours now, and you have said that uh, you will take about 15 minutes. The floor is all yours. Thank you. Well, good afternoon to all of you. The United Nations is a very complex and bureaucratic structure, and I will not 
undertake to explain to you all of the organizations and subcommittees that have been involved in addressing the danger posed by quiet cars. AK mentioned a a minute ago the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. That is the entity that has jurisdiction over vehicle regulations. They, in turn, work through a subbody called WP29, which is the World Forum for Harmonization of Vehicle Regulations, which in turn has a subcommittee called GRB, which is the Working Party on Noise, which in turn has the Quiet Road Transport Vehicle, QRTV, Informal Working Group, let's see, what would that be, Um, IWG. So you have all of these different entities involved. But let me start at the end and then I'll work backward. In March of this year, just a few months ago, the United Nations adopted an international standard requiring hybrid and electric vehicles to be equipped with an alert sound device. And that is because of blind people throughout the world. So how did this all begin? This is really a good illustration of the role of the World Blind Union and how it works in complementary fashion with the work of individual country organizations. Many years ago in the United States, well, not so many years ago, we, as with blind people in other parts of the world, began to be concerned with the number of hybrid and electric vehicles that were coming onto the market. These vehicles traveling at slow speeds are essentially silent, thereby posing a danger to all pedestrians and especially to blind and partially sighted pedestrians. As a result, in 2008, the National Federation of the Blind in the United States approached the Congress asking that a minimum sound standard be adopted in federal law. But of course, if a quiet car is deadly in the U.S., it is just as deadly anywhere else. As a result, Federation President Dr. Mark Maurer traveled that same year to Geneva, Switzerland to speak before the the world, uh, the WP29, the World Forum for Harmonization of Vehicle Regulations. And he raised the concern that blind people had around the danger posed by these quiet cars. As a result, the UN undertook to establish a technical committee to develop a minimum sound standard. So what began as a country effort quickly became an international effort because while in each individual country you might be able to advocate with your national legislature 
for a standard. And perhaps you would be successful, perhaps not. But an international standard would give uniformity and would assure blind people as we travel throughout the world of having reasonable safety when crossing roads. So, how has the progress or how has the work progressed? There are many, many technical issues, and I can tell you that I have learned more about acoustic engineering than any human being should have to suffer. But it's important. It's important to make certain that we get the right kind of sound, that it be a sound that is readily identifiable as an alert sound. In other words, you don't want a sound that sounds like a bird chirping because you wouldn't necessarily know, is it a quiet car or just a bird going by? So you have to have a sound that is intuitively recognizable as an alert sound. There have been many, many different parts to the regulatory process, but we have distilled down to three issues that we think are central. One is the volume of the alert sound. In other words, we've worked with the engineers to identify standards or parameters for what the sound should be, but the remaining question is how loud should the sound be? This has been a very, very difficult issue. Not because people aren't sympathetic to the need for safety, but partly it, be, it is a result of their own orientation as acoustic engineers. Remember that the work of developing this standard was given to GRB, the Working Party on Noise. The work that GRB does is all focused on reducing vehicle noise. And so anything that introduces sound, they consider it to be noise and therefore undesirable. So their orientation is to have the sound be as quiet as it can possibly be. They want it loud enough for safety, but just barely loud enough for safety. So what is that magic sound level? Of course, we won't fully know the answer until we have these alert devices in operation and we have experience with them on the roads. But in trying to come up with the initial standard, the technical experts with whom we've worked have wanted the standard to be as quiet as possible, and yet we as blind people have argued that it should be as close to the sound that an ordinary internal combustion engine makes. One of the negotiation sessions one of the engineers said that the sound did not need to be loud enough to allow a blind person to make a safe crossing decision, only loud enough to make sure that a driver could stop before hitting the pedestrian. In other words, they didn't believe that you and I needed to have enough notice of the car to travel or to cross safely. They just wanted us to know it was around 
far enough away so that if we were to step unexpectedly into the road, the driver could stop. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not want to put my life in the hands of a driver who may or may not be paying attention, who may or may not be texting, who may or may not be daydreaming. I want to have the sound loud enough so that I can affirmatively determine whether it is safe to cross. I have a, a bit of a temper at times, and when we were having this discussion, which probably could be called an argument, I finally said to the fellow, well, let me backtrack. He said, in my country, the law requires drivers to be alert to the presence of pedestrians. Well, that's the case in every country I know of. And so he said, as long as the driver can stop, that's all you need. The law requires them to be alert to the presence of pedestrians. And I thought to myself, are you really saying that cars never hit pedestrians in your country? Of course they do. So finally I, I said, I do not want my tombstone to read, he had the right of way. So there have been other discussions of, of, of this type. Uh, these are people of goodwill, and we have made good progress. And the sound level, as I say, what, what is the correct sound level? Well, time will tell. Another major issue to us has been what we think is the very common sense need for the vehicle to make sound while it is stationary. Now, I don't mean when it's turned off, but if one of these quiet vehicles is stopped at a traffic light, we believe the alert sound should be on so that you and I know that that vehicle is there and we don't unexpectedly step out in front of a vehicle that is about to accelerate. But again, the orientation of the engineers is that sound is noise. And so they think that the vehicle should be silent when stopped, even though the data that have been collected in the UK and in the US all show that many of the accidents involving these quiet cars are, are occurring from cars that are in car parks, what we call parking lots. In other words, a pedestrian coming out of the grocery store if that person doesn't know that the vehicle is turned on, they're not expecting it to move because they don't hear anything. And I don't mean blind pedestrians, pedestrians generally. And so these cars, which start to move very quickly, if they are silent while they are turned on, they pre present a hazard. One of the sound engineers said to me, a silent car never, or excuse me, he said, a stationary car never hurt anyone. Well, of course that's true. But you and I know that if you are unaware that a vehicle is present and could begin moving at any time, that's a danger.
So the regulation permits the vehicle alert sound to be on while the vehicle is stationary, but it does not require it. So this will take further uh, convincing on our part, further advocacy on our part. One issue that was a very grave concern to us concerns whether to allow a switch that the driver could use to turn off the alert sound. There were many, many countries in the negotiation that wanted the driver to be able to turn off the alert sound. The logic that was expressed to us is that if the driver finds the alert sound annoying, the driver should be able to turn it off. In another fit of temper, I said, I would find being run over by a quiet car very annoying. And I think other blind people would as well. So finally, in the, in the negotiations, we were able to get agreement that a pause switch operated by the driver is not safe. However, we reached that agreement too late to go into the initial regulation. So the regulation adopted in March says that the vehicle may have, it doesn't have to have, but it may have a pause function, a switch that would allow the driver to turn off temporarily the alert sound. But in two weeks, at a meeting in Geneva that I will be attending, we will be able to move forward an amendment that will then go through the regulatory process to just simply prohibit a pause function. So all of this speaks to the technical details, and the details are many. As I say, the UN is a very bureaucratic institution. But at the end of the day, because of our advocacy, the roads will be safe for blind people and much safer for sighted pedestrians as well. We have brought to the attention of the world community the danger posed by silent vehicles. And we have affirmatively advocated for a solution, an alert device that will allow pedestrians to be notified when a quiet vehicle is present and moving and the direction of that movement, all important to safety. But in my mind, the most important part is the reaffirmation of our right, our human right, to be able to travel safely in the public streets. Literally, these cars, as more and more are, are purchased and become present on the streets, they had the potential of ending independent travel for blind people. And because of our collective advocacy, we have been able to convince the United Nations to issue a regulation that is a first step, not a final step, there is work to be done, but a first important dramatic step toward affirming the right of blind people and people with low vision, partially sighted individuals to be able to travel the streets independently 
with dignity and safety. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much, Fred, for uh, such an illuminating presentation on a subject which uh, is going to require a lot of attention from different parts of the world. Thank you very much. Finally, friends, we turn to Martin once again for our third topic of the session, which is international travel with a guide dog, the latest research results identifying issues and recommendations. So this seems to be a report on a research study which has been undertaken. So it's all yours now. Marty. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, <clears throat> four years ago, in a presentation at the World Blind Union Assembly, the matters around international travel was raised, and so this was one of our working group's four priorities. So the Axis group have thought to look into travelling um, accessibly with a guide dog international, internationally. So this document will look at our research results because we all have heard horror stories and anecdotal evidence, but there is not much being done to capture those in very specific survey results. <clears throat> So more countries than ever are allowing people to travel with assistance dogs, and that includes guide dogs, or some of you would say dog guides. Um, so, and that is due to uh, better health uh, monitoring, better veterinary strengthening procedures, and better animal disease control, and better ways of recording it worldwide. So although this is made have paved the way a bit more better for people travelling with guide dogs, we still heard the bad stories. And this was not of people who did not ask, who did not say to the local veterinarian, um, I need to travel, which paperwork should I fill in? Um, this, you know, we, there was just so many obstructions still. So what we've looked at is to look at, at barriers and then at what can be done about it. So we realised there were barriers from when you plan to travel, how many months beforehand do you have to fill in some export certificate, to barriers to do with during travel. Some airlines still have issues or discriminatory practices about allowing guide dogs on the plane. Two issues relating to being welcomed on the other side. We all know how frustrating it can be if you have travelled, um, in some of our cases, quite a long distance to get to the other side and either your suitcase is not quite there or there's some other problem and you just want to reach your destination, relax, and then to find out that some form you filled in wasn't correct. So in other words, some of the barriers can be identified in three strands, financial cost, and um, that's usually to do with vet visits, blood tests, 
bureaucratic systems, and that's often to do with what form do you fill out? Is it inconsistency of compliance practices by various local, regional, and state departments and discriminatory practices and policies? So whatever you do, you did all the paperwork correctly, and somewhere there's someone in the system that wouldn't let your dog, wouldn't allow your dog somewhere. So to gain a better understanding is we decided to do a WBU sanctioned survey. So in February last year, in our e-bulletin, we published the survey for you to react. And the International Guide Dog Federation, which is also now one of our new affiliates, assisted in a great way of also publicising this survey. So we've asked a number of questions because we realised if we just have anecdotal evidence, we'll still need to analyse it in some way, although we did keep it very qualitative so that we have real examples and not just numbers. So the questions were, if you've been travelling with your guide dog, what has worked well? Because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. If something's worked well, we want to, we want to encourage that. Second question, uh, while travelling with your guide dog, what problems did you experience? The third question was, if you have not been travelling with your guide dog, what are the reasons? The fourth question was about, are there any policies and legislation in place to ensure accessible and inclusive travel, and if so, what? So we wanted to get some proof of what is out there already. The fifth question was, if required, do you have the financial support or subsidised schemes available to support you financially and able for you to travel with the dog? The sixth question was, as far as you know, are there systems and practices in place in your country, internally as well as internationally, between departments to, so that they can talk to one another to make access more, uh, travel more accessible? And we need examples. And the seventh question is, do you have any additional suggestions? So we didn't want to lose out on, on any pearls of wisdom. So we have received 30 responses, and that does seem like a low number, but I think we have to realise two things, is that there are still only a portion of our population, most of them in developed countries, that are actually travelling more and more internationally, and then, of course, having a guide dog and travelling with a guide dog. And, of course, we might not have reached everybody through this survey. So, but we, at least the countries we, we, that, that did um, respond included South Africa, Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Singapore, the US and Spain. And um, so here are some of the feedback. And I won't read everything because sometimes what went well would be seen in the opposite as in what problems were experienced. So I think when we see those, we just realise in one word it can be summed up as inconsistency. Things can work well. We do have the answers to most of the problems, but there's inconsistency. So some people have said that form filling was fine, the forms were accessible, the airport staff, the airline staff were 
very helpful. Officials were great in explaining the reason for the form filling. And, you know, so there were some great examples of what went well, especially when people are traveling regularly, like anything you get used to knowing how long ahead you should try to do some form filling and so on. So it is, there is a matter of uh, aspect of familiarization here. The problems were actually exactly what we just said. People were told to fill in a specific form and when they got to their destination it was the wrong form or a specific page is missing. Uh, so inconsistency, some of the information was not accessible so doing the form filling yourself wasn't independently possible. Um, people being treated on airlines, you know, have to be told to sit in a specific space, to wait, to disembark, to be assistant, where people felt that they could assist themselves. There were not always airside toileting spaces for the dogs, although I realise that some major airports are now increasingly having those. I mean, at least our dogs don't have to deal with the small toilets on planes that we have to, but they probably still want to get off the plane as soon as possible. So, um, yeah, that is probably worth, worth thinking. So... <clears throat> And then, of course, we look at, at why people didn't travel with their dog. And, and some of these are, are common sense. People would say to us, look, it's, I just wanted to go on holiday. And um, the dog would have need to learn a new environment. Uh, um, I, I just couldn't be bothered. It was a relaxing break for both of us. Other people said too expensive. By the time the form filling is done, it nearly costs more than my travel. And some people just, you know... It, it wasn't really practical. And that is a reality too. I think many of us who are traveling with our guide dogs make that call now and then not to travel with them. So then we're looking at uh, when, when, um, when people are traveling, what policies were there, what worked well. And of course, people quoted for us various policies, um, especially in the United States and Australian Anti-Discrimination um, Act. So we have a few policies and legislation that were saying, yes, um, this, is, this is what should happen. But of course, we know what can be in a policy and legislation is not always um, brought through in practical terms. What we also find interesting is people gave us feedback about cruise ships. So, and of course, you know, international travel is not just by a um, plane, and of course it can be um, by land as well. And it was interesting to note that, for instance, if you go by cruise ship, you need to get the information, not just, oh, I'm now on international space and the cruise ship will accept the dog and there's a, say, an artificial lawn space for the dog, etc., etc. But what if you want to go um, on shore, at, at, say, when you visit various islands? Is it just easy not to go on shore? Did you have to try to leave the dog behind? Or can you have an arrangement that you find out what is actually needed for specific, what is needed for specific islands, for instance, to, for you to take the dog on there? And again, it's about practicalities. What would really, what would really work? Of course, I've mentioned the um, Air Access Act for in the US, 
And I know that the, as recently as last year, we heard at the Lisbon Conference on Transit that there are some new um, US legislation around major airports having airside toileting facilities. So I think we are slowly on getting there. There are still huge issues around, even if policy is in place, around countries talking to one another. Um, and I think most of us have heard you know, about people reaching a destination with a dog and then the dog had to be impounded or couldn't leave with you. And of course, or the dog was in quarantine because you immigrated and then just to find out that um, some specific test wasn't done. And that is very traumatic when that happened. Um, it happened to me, I found out after not seeing my dog for nine months, the dog went to England I was in New Zealand, and a week before she was arrived, due to arrive, I was told that no one alerted anybody about heartworm tests, so there'll be another month. And that month took longer, felt longer than the nine months that I didn't see her because just because it was such a mistake. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. People have really responded to us with the most strangest examples of bureaucracy. For instance, um, someone landed in, in South Africa with a dog, but because it was on a weekend, the airport couldn't ensure that a veterinary specialist would be on hand to, do, to sign the, the paperwork off. So we all know that travel happens on weekends as well. So we still know there's a way to go. But we really want to focus on the positive. So we try to say to people, okay, you've mentioned some good examples. What can we do at WBU-related level? So some of our recommendations or some of the recommendations through the survey came through. A more mainstream process should be adopted, in both to do with paperwork checks and veterinary checks. And this should include international standardization. Now, that's probably easier said than done, but I'm sure we can start off with a dream and make it real. Then a central repository is needed. Where can we find a place where there's forms already accessible, where you can store forms that you've filled in in the past so you can refresh them, where there's more information about why certain tests are needed? So, again, we need... Uh, information. If we have the information, we can make informed decisions. Thank you. Of course, we need to know which, which countries or airlines are not accessible yet because we do not want to put ourselves in a situation to set ourselves up for failure, but we also then want to speed up advocacy in those areas. So really, in, in conclusion, there is lots of work to be done between the WBU and especially with our partner International Guide Dog Federation and of course in various individual member advocacy situations too so that we can ensure that there's more and more opportunities to travel safely and accessibly when we have the choice to take our guide dog with us. So, um, and also be aware that the Inshan strategy that deals with the Asia-Pacific region third decade on disabled people from 2012 to 2024 have got a specific task for the World Blind Union to work on access to transport with some focus on guide dogs and other agencies such as International Deaf Blind 
Association and ASEAN Disability Forum will work with us on the side. We will focus on the dog side. They will focus on the sides to do with um, travelling with um, medical, with drugs, medical systems, motorised and battery wheelchairs. So let's hope that some of these international collaboration opportunities will lead for us to travel and have the choice to travel successfully and independently with our guide dogs. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Martin, for this very clear and uh, very useful presentation. Indeed, the Incheon strategy, which marks the third uh, Asia-Pacific decade for persons with disabilities, 2013-2022, is also focusing on the issue of uh, guide dogs and related aspects. Um, I would also like to point out here that uh, Martin had organized in April this year, April 13th to 15th, in Auckland, an access forum as a part of the WBU initiative being looked after by her. And I believe that was a very useful... Um, they had very useful discussion there on subjects like uh, air travel with or without a guide dog, barrier-free environment, shared spaces, etc., now, friends, it is time for questions and comments from our participants. The World Blind Union has provided us some guidelines for facilitation of questions from the floor. So we shall follow that process. I shall request those who wish to ask a question or make a comment to raise their country sign country sign the board you have on your table only sorry only delegates and associate members please the stage manager stephanie i believe yes. may kindly prepare a list of uh, delegates associate members wanting to ask questions based on the country name Questions and comments are not to exceed 90 seconds, please. And each delegate associate member to have one question. The objective is that we would like to have as many questions or comments as possible. We shall invite a question by naming the country. Please, when it comes, when you have your turn, please give your name. Keep your question or comment short and indicate who the question is directed to. So please, friends, if you have raised your country sign, our stage manager will do the listing and call out uh, one by one. So we'll begin with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my comments will be addressed to our incoming president. You are, you are Mr. Nasser Al-Musa. Oh, yes. My yeah. name is Nasser Al-Musa. I'm from Saudi Arabia. Sorry. My comments will be addressed to uh, our coming president, uh, Dr. Fred Schroeder. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Mr. President. I know that you will be a wonderful president 
I think we are very lucky to have someone like you with the knowledge, with the experience, with the uh, vision and mission to lead the union. I have very quick two questions, not one, but very quick. Question number one, uh, Mr. President, do you feel that the United States of America will or should play a more active role in international and global issues related to blindness and visual impairment? Question number one, uh, that's number one. Number two, do you have a specific plan or a specific uh, project to deal with access issues related to blindness and visual impairment in the developing countries, in countries in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and something like that. I know, that, I know that's too early, but if you have some ideas to share, uh, to share them with us regarding that issue, that would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Al-Musa. I will, however, request before Fred responds, we have very limited time. If our questions and comments could please deal with the issues, specific issues discussed in this session. Thank you. Fred, would you like to? Yes. Uh, as far as the United States and its involvement, I think with, with any issue that emerges, the question is, is it an issue that is specific to a country or is it an issue that is a global issue? And in some cases, it would be both. So, for example, the United States pursued the legislation here to require quiet cars to have an alert device. At the same time, Dr. Maurer approached the United Nations and raised the issue as a global issue. And then, since the World Blind Union is a UN-accredited NGO, once that committee was formed, we became a part of that. There are parallels, too, with the book treaty. Uh, many countries have introduced laws, copyright laws, that allowed for the production of books in accessible formats without seeking specific permission from the copyright holder. And in the United States, I believe it was in 1997, national law uh, provided for, for production of books in alternate formats in the U.S., but the complement was the book treaty. We needed not only to be able to produce books in our individual countries, but to share books across international borders. And so as far as uh, what would be the, the future, as far as collaboration, the U.S. with other, with other countries, I, I think it depends on what issues emerge. Uh, one of the issues, and this really relates to your, the second half of your question, what is the vehicle for ensuring access uh, to, to getting around independently and, and uh, the vehicle for promoting that? Probably the most readily available vehicle is the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And Jose Vieira will be doing workshops on that. But it's a broad human rights, civil rights document, and I think could be used 
as an advocacy tool as an advocacy tool. What can the World Blind Union do? It can support national members by providing technical information, particularly about how the treaty is being implemented in other countries to use as a as a template. So there is uh, certainly much to do. I hope that responds to your question. Thank you, sir. Guinea Equatorial. Muchas gracias. Buenas tardes. Felicidades a todos los organizadores de la de la Asamblea, la Unión eh, la Federación Nacional de los Estados Unidos para los Ciegos, la Unión Mundial de Ciegos. Todos los que han estado interviniendo esta mañana, los oradores, a todos felicidades. Y muchas gracias por el trabajo exitoso que ustedes han estado haciendo. Eh, yo me quiero dirigir al orador que ha estado hablando sobre el tema de los vehículos silenciosos. And vehicles. And I believe, and I propose that the next session that you have about that topic, that I think that the best is that it's not some, it's not an option to be able to press a button to be able to, for the sound of the vehicle who is silent when it's stopped. And let's say it's, it's turned off or it's functioning. Let's let let's not that have as an option. So when the engine of the of the car is on, then the noise is, is activated, because a lot of the times we know how the human beings are. We could It could be that maybe maybe the driver is not doesn't want to press the button. And it, maybe it's there, but he doesn't want to press it, he doesn't want to activate it, and maybe he's going to suppose that that's going to be a, a, a danger for the blind person or for any other person who's walking and next to the car. So, the, I think the normal thing would be for if it if the car is on, then it's emitting, let's say, the um, gases to the atmosphere, or and it's also emitting sound as well, so the person who's next to the car could be conscious that the car is on. And that would prevent, not because I forgot, or because if there's an accident, they're going to ask the driver, why did you not press the button for the alarm? And the guy would say, no, I forgot. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, certainly, that what you have just described has been the position of the WBU. We do not believe that the driver should have control over whether the alert sound is activated. The initial regulation does permit the driver to have the ability to turn the switch on or off. And I say that kind of carefully because it doesn't require that ability and so many of the car manufacturers have said even if the on-off switch is permitted they won't put it on their vehicles but this amendment that we are moving forward in two weeks will prohibit the driver from being able to turn off the switch. And, and as far as the sound at stationary, I, I agree with you. If the vehicle is active, if you think about a residential neighborhood and you're walking down the sidewalk, if there is a car in a driveway and it's turned on but silent, you may step uh, right behind the vehicle having no idea that it's turned on and uh, or even that it's present and have it then start to back up. So uh, what you've described is exactly what we continue to advocate. 
South Africa. Um, thanks, thanks very much. My name is Lisivana Movundala from South Africa. I wanted to make a comment on the uh, universal access uh, for the vehicles. Um, these days, uh, mo some of the vehicles they manufacture, uh, I would say, music equipment or radios that are not accessible with touch screens that are not accessible um, and that makes it difficult for a visually impaired a person to operate such I'm just checking with, with, with WBU accessibility um, um, where um, can we make sure that uh, um, in such platforms where we are able to engage with the manufacturers um, taking advantage of what um, initiatives that has been taking place currently on the sound to also raise the issue of uh, making sure that some of those equipments that we find in, 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 in vehicles are, are accessible because a, a visually impaired passenger becomes passive uh, during the process and it becomes very difficult um, for, for him to be or for her to be to enjoy the the, the comfort of a, a vehicle. So 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 in, in in that case I think that making sure that uh, such uh, equipment becomes accessible it it will help then uh, a, a visually impaired to also enjoy the comfort of being in a vehicle because most of those they get manufactured somewhere but they get they become assembled in developing countries so let's let's make sure that we raise more advocacy more awareness to make sure that they become more accessible uh, in the spirit of universal access thanks would you like to thank you that that is um, that is a, a very important issue. Most of you who flew to this general assembly probably were not able to run the movie audio system on your airplane. At least many of the planes I fly on, they're not accessible. That is uh, an important issue. It is it is separate. That would be through a different UN agency to try to get some type of international accessibility standard. Uh, right now, the one that that I'm working on relates only to the quiet car issue, but accessibility generally is has many dimensions: the legal dimension, but also the, as you said, trying to work with manufacturers. Uh, Martin deals with universal access. I don't know if you have more to add. Martin, would you like to add on? You are dealing with access to environment. Yeah. Um Briefly, there's a lot of areas where access to environment physically and technologically are crossing over. So we have at the moment at WBU two committees, but we realise that there are areas that we need to work together. Um, I'd just like to remind people about 
the newly updated universal design policy that our working group have updated. That's on the website now. And that is quite a modern policy, so take that to manufacturers, even if people have those internally to your country, because it is not just about... It can be interpreted in more than just the physical environment, although it, it was written for the physical environment. Um, but really, you mentioned items here such as, um, and we find that on touchscreens and planes, we also find it with mobile apps moving around in, in places that there are a crossover, so we know that we have to, in the, in the next few years, four years, focus on the crossover where technology and access and the environment, physical environment meets. Thank you. Malaysia? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, this is a comment. Um, my name is Ivan Ho. This is just a comment. Um, in defense of Ivan Ho and in defense of Braille literacy, um, because before Mr. Choi Tong Ek from uh, South Korea cut off my head. Now, Martin Abel did a very good job in her two presentations. But in the Braille copy, it, it's written she's a vice president of WBUAP, which she is not, um, just as a correction. So, Mr. Choi, we did not take your vice president away. And this is to bring that I did read the Braille uh, in defense of Braille literacy. Thank you. Uh, a, a good point, sir. Point well taken. But as you would have noticed when we were introducing uh, Martin, we did not use that designation. It has come on the program. It's just an oversight. I believe Martin was the vice president some time back. We didn't want to take away the position from anyone. Sorry about that. Next. Liberia. Liberia? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, well, I have a few concerns, and I hope Martin and... Your, your, your name? My, my name is Bianji Kota from Liberia. Thank you. Mm. Um, we, we just succeeded in Liberia in getting the White King Law enacted. And there is this concern as to giving the right of way to blind people, pedestrians, uh, the concern is how do drivers, pedestrians, no blind people. Uh, that means they, they must have a white cane in order to be secure, protected, and protected as road users at giving uh, the right of way or given right to to path pathways. What what is your your, your own experience or your share experience that you can share with us. Does it require that blind people should have white king by all means to be able to be identified or there are other means we can use to uh, or for drivers to, be, to identify them or pedestrians to identify them so as to utilize or to make or enjoy the right to move freely and safely. The second concern is to Dr. Strada. Uh, requirements from the United Nations <laughs> sometimes is re resolve into resolutions or treaties or conventions. If these requirements 
What does requirement in, in, entails? Is it that manufacturers are on the obligation to manufacture their vehicles? Uh, and, and in that, how does that apply in terms of benefiting or uh, reaching down to ordinary men and women with vision impairment in developing countries? How can we claim those uh, requirements? How do we hold our government to it? Is it through a resolution that will be adopted by the membership of the United Nations and, and is it going to come down in the form of a convention? How, what do we anticipate and in what way can we as right holders hold duty bearers accountable to this? Please uh, give us some more information on the yeah, choir cars or the alert, alertness for these choir cars. Thank you. Um, firstly, very briefly about white canes, just reminding people to use the International White Cane Day in October to have education and publicity opportunities about what the white, what the white cane is for because we realize that um, many people don't think, many people think it's only totally blind people who are using it. As for whether pedestrians should carry it, I think there are people that say it's our own responsibility to uh, make ourselves visible. And of course, some people say that it's in a society where it's not our clinical impairment that causes the barriers, but how society treats us, it's up to us to feel whether we want to cross the road safely, whether we have a cane or not. So there is a, a balance there between the responsibility of how we can get around safely, but I would say definitely it's always a good idea to promote and educate around the white cane because that is, after all, was the first symbol around and uh, moving around independently. Um, I'll now pass on to Fred for the second one. Yes. Uh, okay, this gets quite technical. Initially, the work was begun on developing what is called a global technical regulation, GTR. Now, a global technical regulation would operate essentially like a treaty, like a convention. In other words, the global technical regulation would be made available and countries would determine whether to adopt it or not to adopt it. A couple of years ago, and there's a lot of detail around this that I'll, I'll skip, but I'd be glad to tell, talk to anybody during the break in more detail. A couple of years ago, the work on a global technical regulation was set aside, and it progressed under what is called the 58 Agreement. So what is the 58 Agreement? Well, in some ways it is better and in some ways it is less good than the global technical regulation. The 58 agreement covers 50 countries so it's not worldwide so in that sense it's more limited but those 50 countries under the 58 agreement 
agree that whatever regulations are established under that agreement, they will implement those in their countries. So with a treaty, for example, Marrakesh, uh, as you know, the Marrakesh Treaty passed uh, three years ago, and now it's country by country whether to ratify it. This, this sound regulation under the 58 agreement, when it goes into force, all 50 countries that are parties to the 58 agreement automatically agree. And that's most of Europe, uh, Japan, Australia. So it's very, very significant. We're going to continue working on a global technical regulation that would then give other countries a formal vehicle for having a uniform regulation. I'm sorry this gets so technical, but here's the implication for the developing world. With this requirement, all major car manufacturers will now be producing cars that are equipped with the alert sound because 50 countries will require it. And so they won't take that alert sound off when selling those same vehicles to other countries. That, that alert device will become standard in those vehicles. And so in that sense, this 58 agreement, while you could say, but it only covers 50 countries, well, that's true. But in, in my opinion, it will have much, much broader implication, including implications for developing countries. And I'm sure at this point you're sorry you asked. <laughs> Gambia? Good afternoon. My name is Maria Madrame from the Gambia. My question is about the importance of dog guides, as we are not familiar with it in our country. And it is very important for visual impaired lacos in, in our development, developing countries. So what efforts can we do, can WBU and others that are used to it can help our countries also to be able to be familiar with it as they are very important for us? Oh, that's wonderful to hear about other countries wanting to... Um increase dog guides and become aware of it. I think this is a great opportunity where WBU can work with the International Guide Dog Federation so that we can encourage schemes and there's already schemes happening where countries who have had dog guides and instructors and trainers and puppy walkers, so the people who raise the dogs are um, trained in other countries and where, dog ex and where dogs are being uh, bred to export and where schools are being started, where there's mentors. So there's definitely situations out there where countries who've had guide dog schools, because it's not just about the dogs, it's about how do we do the training and then how do we socialise it into the country with governments. And so... So skilled countries and people and countries who've had dog guides for a long time are definitely supporting others out there. So I would say please stay in touch with us 
at WBU level and the International Guidoc Federation, and I'm sure that uh, we can encourage some of these education and distribution opportunities more. Thank you very much for the interest. Guatemala. Muy buenas tardes. Good afternoon. It is a pleasure to speak with everybody. My name is Jorge Luis Lopez from Guatemala, and my question is for Frederick. In reference to the silent vehicles that are considered a problem, not only for the for the handicapped population, but for population in general. My question is if there are or if there is any other alternative action to what has been done lately, finding the manufacturers of cars, of silent cars, if maybe we can implement these devices. When I'm talking about some alternative action, I'm thinking perhaps of some kind of device which could be used by blind people who could maybe measure the velocity of an object, which could be a detector of the object. Whereas, while some other alternatives happens, And until this agreement happens and until the policy establishes and forces the manufacturers to include these devices. I know that universities in all of uh, countries have their engineering school. In Guatemala, we did a proposal of this kind about some months ago, and they're evaluating it because they see this situation as a little bit... Uh, as a little bit difficult as a, as a big issue but um, I just leave the question open I don't know if anything if any other alternative is being considered in the meantime you raise a very important point there are so many advances in technology that the solution that we're looking at today with an alert sound is in some respects a starting point. So, for example, you mentioned a device that would allow you to detect the velocity of a moving object. That is something certainly that could be developed. There are uh, radar devices that police use to measure the speed of traveling vehicles. And, and, and that certainly would be a device that could aid in mobility Um, even if you have an alert sound, if you're in an area with a lot of background noise, construction or whatever, or train passing by, something creating a lot of noise, uh, you won't hear that vehicle. So that's one option. But there are many that have been talked about. For example, uh, the Swedish car manufacturer has developed technology that that actually allows the car to determine whether there is a pedestrian present. In other words, it can detect whether there's a, a light pole or a pedestrian standing on the side of the street. So as that kind of technology develops, the vehicle will know whether there's a pedestrian anywhere in the vicinity. And if there is, maybe the alert sound comes on. And if there are no pedestrians, maybe it's not needed. 
so there are many, many possibilities. Uh, another would be for a smartphone to be able to uh, be alerted when a quiet vehicle is within a certain range and so on and so on. But your, your point is exactly right that in some respects as new challenges present themselves to blind people, then as technology progresses it will offer many strategies to help address those solutions. We are uh, almost finishing our time but we have a few more questions. Austria, could we go fast please? Yes, I'll be brief. Thank you. Thank you. Markus Wolf from Austria. Um, question to Fred Schroeder. First of all, I'd wish you everything of success for your period as president of this great organization and thank you for all your efforts you have done to make uh, traffic and mobility safer. My question to you, not a technical question, a policy issue, do you feel that enough has been done to make our governments globally aware of the problem of silent cars? I sometimes feel that a few countries are aware of it and a few countries are working at it, but that the global awareness of this danger is not quite sufficient. The Marrakesh Treaty on the access of books actually brought a quite broad movement globally. Is something like that also needed for silent cars or is what is aimed at policy sufficient in your, in, 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 uh, from your perspective? Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. I, I would phrase it a little bit differently. The Marrakesh Treaty and the quiet car issue have certain parallels but certain differences as well. For example, the, ma the automobile manufacturers, they want a standard. They don't want to have to produce one kind of device for Austria and a different device for Japan and a different device for South Africa and so on. So it's different in some respects. Uh, but I think that with Marrakesh, we were able to draw, bring attention to the literacy issue, but if you think about it, what's the point of literacy? Well, there's no point unless you believe that blind people can be productive. And so when we advocated for Marrakesh, we were advocating for the right of blind people to be educated, to be employed, to be integrated into society. And the vehicle is, accept, is accessible books. I think that same opportunity exists with quiet cars. If we take this to our national governments and argue for some type of adoption, recognition of the UN standard, whatever specific request we make of government, we're doing it under this concept of blind people being having a, a right to access to the public streets. 
And what's the point of that? Why should blind people have access to the streets? Well, because we have a right to full integration, to be educated, to be employed, to be active in our communities. So I, I think, in my mind, the advocacy effort is part technical. Let's solve the, the, the danger posed by these quiet cars. But it's also a tremendous opportunity to elevate awareness about the issues confronting blind people in our national governments. Uh, we are already into our coffee break time, but we still have a few countries. United Kingdom? Kevin, Car Kevin Carey from the United Kingdom and Chairman of the World Blind Union Technology Committee. It seems to me that the discussion both about touchscreens and about silent cars raises the important issue of the fact that whenever we advance a right to, a right to something, it isn't an absolute right. One of, the, one of the problems with silent cars is that they are a good thing in themselves. And therefore, if we want to mitigate the negative aspect of silent cars for blind people, and that's our responsibility, instead of trying to get the world to go against something that's fundamentally a good thing. On touch screens, it's a bit similar. When we advance the right of information, what we have to remember is that in almost every country in the world, it is the legal duty of companies to maximize shareholder value. So they can't make concessions for us out of kindness, because if they did, we'd essentially be lobbying them to break the law, which is quite stupid. So what we have to do is we have to balance when it's appropriate to lobby, and when it's appropriate for us to find solutions in our own sector to our own problems, and we might actually find that it's cheaper to develop apps than it is to pay lobbyists. Uh, yeah, no, I... Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Thailand? <laughs> Thailand? Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, congratulations to our new coming president. I believe that you will do a great job and be a good president. Second one, um, sorry, this is Montian from Thailand. I think this is a very good example of accessibility through universal design and assistive technologies. When we're talking about universal design, we're talking about general, general solution. We need the design of the, the vehicles that will serve the needs of people, including blind people. So that lays as responsible of uh, the industry, the companies that design the car. It's the same as what we expect from touchscreen earlier. It's the same as what we expect from GUI, graphical users interface. It it is considered to be advancement for a lot of people. It caused a lot of comfort to many people, but it caused trouble to blind people. And we're not happy about that. So I agree that we need to work. But I also agree that we need assistive technology 
to solve our specific problems. So we need both universal access and uh, through universal design, such as standard, like uh, our new president just talked about. But we also need assistive technologies so that we can customize our own specific solution. So they go both together. And perhaps WBU can send our strong signal uh, to the industry and to the public that this is what we mean uh, unless we are safe, unless we can have access to safe traveling. We're not going to be happy and we're not satisfied with how the, our rights is be, are being taken by the, by the whole world community on this issue. With regard to GuideDoc, I, I think um, I, I, I would like to uh, uh, express my appreciation to my fellow um, Martin Abel from our region, Asia Pacific. I also would like to see that uh, WBU uh, put in place some kind of a guide, guide, guideline for guide dogs because guide dog could be a very good, convenient tool, but could, it could also face major cultural sensitivity issues as well. So much that we love our dogs. You know, some society do not welcome uh, the utilization of dogs as, as, as working animals. And they, they tend to treat dogs as pets, and that could cause a lot of problems to our dogs and, and uh, end up being miserable. Uh, blind people end up being miserable in that kind of situation. So I hope that we can provide the world public, some public education so that we can see some good balance between uh, provide providing safe traveling to blind people and also to touch upon the cultural sensitivity and to, uh, to conduct some uh, education campaign for, for the public so that they, they understand our needs and our requirements much better. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can I move on? Yes. Um, we, we still have three more countries and we, are, we will be shortening the coffee time then. India? We want very quick and brief responses, please. Uh, questions, please. Uh, this is Joachim Rapos from India, representing NAB National Association for the Blind. Uh, see, in our region, we always ask the car to halt at the signal at uh, the traffic in turn to save fuel or the, uh, to control the pollution. In that case, I have a suggestion that the driver should not be given a choice to start the alarm or to switch off the alarm. The alarm should be attached to the engine. The automatically, it starts and switch off. And also my fellow friend from Guatemala has given a very good suggestion regarding alarm. But yes, that also has some limitation because uh, in the background, as uh, our uh, Mr. Frederick has said that in background, there may be a lot of sound. In that case, I have a, a one more suggestion that uh, we can have some vibration in our uh, uh, the cane what we are using or in our smartphone so that it starts vibrating after a kilometer or so. Thank you. Good suggestion. Equito, quickly. Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Luisina Alcibar, soy del Ecuador, de la Federación Nacional de Ciegos del Ecuador. Mi, más bien es una... Eh, This is more a suggestion 
as far as the manufacturing of vehicles who which have no sounds i believe that we should pl- uh, present the position in a different way not just that the vehicle have sound only for people who are visually handicapped but it also implies adult people and children as well if we presented in such a manner the focus is going to be broader and they're going to see the perspective from the perspective of the handicapped person and also from the perspective of a much wider population because they're going to be thinking about their parents their children and likewise as far as uh, accessible places for people who have uh, visual limitations people with low vision or blind people this is how we are doing it in 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 Puerto Viejo uh, so that it becomes a city for everyone thank you yes a very good point and the data that have been collected show the the increased incidence of these quiet vehicles in accidents with pedestrians but very few of those pedestrians are blind people so you're absolutely right this is a pedestrian safety issue it's vitally important to us but it's a concern to all pedestrians finally Zambia we come to the end of the alphabet hello Thank you, Chairperson, for making me close the first session. Um, I would like to thank, on behalf of Zambia, the National Federation of the Blind here for having hosted this important uh, 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 forum. And also would like to thank the outgoing president for the work he has done since. And also to thank now the incoming that he will take over from the outgoing so that we people from developing countries can, be, can continue uh, benefiting. I have two issues to raise. Number one, guide dogs. In the part of, our, of the world where I come from, many people are scared of the dogs. And if you have a guide dog, you are not allowed to come on a public bus because people there cannot sit near the dog, as my friend said. I don't know what the situation is in other countries where my, my colleagues have come in developing countries. Secondly, my friend from Liberia was talking about the, the white cane. As much as we can reinforce the law to use the people make them recognize the white canes. We are finding difficulties in developing countries because the white canes are very, very costly. We don't even have the money to buy the paint. So my appeal through the World Blind Union is that can you try to speak to those people who manufacture them to be selling them at the affordable prices for people from the developing countries uh, 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 to manage. Otherwise, our efforts are doomed. E.g., I came here trying to buy a white cane, one white cane. It cost me uh, 50% of my salary, which I'm getting locally there. So if I want to buy 10 of them, it will be very costly. Currently here, I'm representing three organizations. One, Zambia Library, Culture and Skills Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. We do mobility in there. I'm also representing the Zambia Association of the Blind in the Urban and the Rural Areas, the marginalized groupings of people. 
and the third one is I'm also representing the Zambia National Federation uh, 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 of the Blind up in, in, in Zambia. I am glad to be here to hear a voice of my former teacher in Malawi University, Kevin Kare. For your information, Kevin Kare, my brother, who was driving you in Nairobi in 1983, uh, 82, unfortunately passed away. But I, I am glad that you are here. I would like to talk about the situation in there. Finally, we have been talking about Braille. We have had problems with children in schools that sit for examinations because when the markers of such examinations come up, the brailing which is used from different schools is differently done. But now in Zambia, I'm proud that we sat on 27 of July, bringing all the schools for the blind to agree on one mode of braille. And we adopted the British system so that we are not getting problems and those people who mark these papers cannot find uh, um, uh, difficulties. We, we are trying to get the American system also put in there, but priority, we have given it to, to the British um, uh, 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 Braille. Right. I, I am happy to be here. My appeal finally, please, White Kenny's World Blind Union, can you please speak to the manufacturers to reduce the costs so that people from the developing countries can be managing to buy the White Kenny's? I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You, you have raised several issues which are very relevant. Ladies and gentlemen, we have already exceeded uh, the time for our session by, by quite a bit. I just want to uh, perform my very pleasant duty, which is to express gratitude to our speakers, Fred Schroeder and uh, Martin Abel Williamson, and to all the participants from different countries for raising issues, questions, and comments. I'm afraid we had to extend the session in, in view of the interest that was evinced all around. Thank you so much. And with this, we close this session. Okay, folks, we are back, and um, I'm not going to bring up email. So okay, we, before we start, I'm going to make just a couple of announcements. Um... Before we start session four, until six o'clock, um, there was an announcement of results of elections, which, uh, as you know, is sorted out for the presidency. So um, instead, just a reminder that six o'clock is um, the deadline for presenting any resolution on room 247 um, and any nomination for the position of First Vice President, Secretary General, and Treasurer. Six o'clock is the deadline. Um, another announcement uh, uh, reminding that at 6.15 um, is meeting the Women's Network. Right after the end of the session at 6, 6.15, Women's Network. Okay, so um, those who don't have the headphones, please take them. Um, I'm going to start addressing in Spanish, my mother language. So we give a chance to the Spanish speakers to get rid of the headphones, too. Um, so, there we go. 
Buenas tardes. Good afternoon Salud. and hello to all the different delegates that have been invited and all our friends to the session number four. And on the table, we have the representatives from different organizations to be able to do the session about rehabilitation for blind people and people who have deficiencies in sight uh, based on the report in relationship to the survey for rehabilitation from the World Blind Union. And uh, here with me we have on the table, we have uh, Kirk Adams, who is the president and CEO of the American Foundation of Blind for the Blind. American Foundation for the Blind, and then we also have Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, who is in charge of developing different senior policy researcher. And we also have Gerard Tutufan, who works for Global Side Savers, and also John Rafferty, who is the president for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, CNIB. And thank you very much. And the people that are going to be talking now, uh, in, uh, as an introduction, I would like to state that within the strategic planning that the World Blind Union, uh, we collaborated for the mandate that ends in 2012-2016. Within the prioritary objective number two, which was training capacity building, The objective, the strategic uh, objective number five, deals with the rehabilitation model, which leader, Carl Augusto, the, the last president for the American Foundation of the Blind, was in charge of coordinating and whose whose priority, general priority, uh, we had the priority of coordinating within the, the capacity building section. And uh, this uh, objective of rehabilitation uh, was under the, the responsibility of presenting or drafting a survey, a survey that was prepared by the American Foundation for the Blind, and it was elaborated by Dr. Rebecca Sheffield with the participation among others of Notre Dame, Benny Harting, Carl Augusto, Margaret And as I was saying, it was elaborated by the American Foundation of the Blind. And this survey gave us to the report for the World Blind Union that was generated at the beginning of 2016 and this year, and it was circulated among all the members of the union. And this survey was distributed in English, in French, Spanish, to all the organizations that were receiving a, re a very favorable response. And we received 46 answers from 46 different countries. And with all the different details about the model and the services for rehabilitation for their respective countries for blind people and people who have deficiency in sight. And the 
National, the American Blind Foundation analyzed this survey and all the different answers that were received, which we've, in a very descriptive way, were showing the different methods, the qualitative uh, for the different rehabilitation models and, and the statistic models as well, and also in a very detailed form uh, for um, programs for rehabilitation at the residential level for services that were offered. Um, to the users um, during a certain uh, long time, which was determined long time, and it was programs that was based in the communities and the different services that were offered close to the homes of the users and uh, also all those uh, specific programs for rehabilitation that were done in within the home of the actual home of the user. And um, so we are going to go directly to go to the first presentation, which is the presentation of the results of that survey. And I'm going to turn the mic over to Dr. Rebecca Sheffield. La doctora me so the doctor says that she prefers uh, that Kirk Adam to start off, who is the president of the American Foundation for the Blind, in order to be able to do the presentation initially. So, Kirk, you have the mic. First Thank you again, Kirk Adams. I became the president of the American Foundation for the Blind on May 1st. And... Um, I'm honored to carry forward the good work of AFB in expanding possibilities for people with vision loss. Um, one of the wonderful opportunities that has been opened up for me in my new role is to participate in and support the work of the World Blind Union. Uh, this is my first time at a WBU meeting, and I just greatly appreciate the opportunity to learn from all of you. Uh, AFB was a founding member of the WBU in 1984. Uh, my predecessor, uh, who has led AFB for 25 years, Carl Augusto, uh, was very dedicated uh, and devoted to serving uh, the World Blind Union, and I, I will uh, carry on that, that commitment. Um, a really wonderful and exciting aspect of my new job is the fact that uh, the American Foundation for the Blind operates a research and public policy center in Washington, D.C., and we were really pleased uh, to offer our research capabilities to the WBU in order to uh, conduct the study uh, of the extent and nature of rehabilitation services for blind and partially sighted people worldwide. Um, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield is our senior policy researcher for AFB. She compiled and analyzed the results of the survey that was distributed to the WBU members. And I now uh, turn the microphone over to Dr. Sheffield so that she can present her findings to you. Thank you, Kirk. Good afternoon, distinguished delegates, colleagues, and friends. Here and on the radio with the American Council of the Blind's ACB radio. I know that my parents are listening in. 
I'm so glad to be here and thankful to the World Blind Union, the Rehabilitation Committee, and everyone who made this presentation possible. Imagine for a moment if, after leaving this assembly next week, you could continue to keep your fingers on the pulse of the global blindness and visual impairment community. Imagine what we could learn if we could listen into the conversations and advocacy efforts happening in countries next door and around the globe. What would we do differently? What would we learn from what others have tried? A few years back, I was planning my dissertation research and I wanted to focus on the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. My advisor recommended that I reach out to Lord Colin Lowe and he advised me, we need to find a way to stop reinventing the wheel on human rights and education for people with vision loss. We need to know what is going on around the world so that we can identify best practices that are working. Well, unfortunately, I'm not here today to unveil a time travel and teleportation machine that will keep us all connected over the next four years. But I am very excited to report on research which gives us insight into the rehabilitation services for people with vision loss around the world. I believe strongly in learning from and with international partners, and so I hope this study is just the beginning of more collaboration and research. First, a little background information, and um, Enrique has already presented and explained a little bit of where this study came from, but the World Blind Union and AFB planned and conducted research to better understand the strengths, challenges, and diverse characteristics of rehabilitation programs provided to adults who are blind or visually impaired in countries and around the globe. As you know, those programs are often delivered through residential, community-based, and in-home services, so we developed our survey to focus on these three service models. The survey was translated, WBU headquarters helped send electronic copies around the globe, and 47 different organizations responded. What did we learn, and what can we do with what we learned? Well, there is certainly more information in the report than I could possibly share this afternoon. But I would like to focus on three key findings. The who, the where, and the what of Global Vision Rehabilitation Services. Who is being served, and who are the people who are not receiving services? Where are people receiving services? And what trends have we seen and can we expect in the location of those services? And finally, what services are being provided? So let's begin with the who. On average, more countries are unable to serve the majority of potential clients for the services they offer than are able to serve everyone who is qualified. Residential rehabilitation services appear to be the least likely of the three service delivery models to be provided to everyone who is interested and qualified for the services. From the survey, we found that it is common for rehabilitation programs to focus on serving people with visual impairments, including those who also have additional disabilities. Of the 33 countries that responded offering residential rehabilitation programs, 12 said that their residential programs serve people with visual impairment who may also have additional disabilities. 36 countries reported offering community-based services, and of those, 15 offered these services to people with visual impairments who may also have additional disabilities. 
And of the 26 countries within home rehabilitation programs, 14 served people with vision impairment and other disabilities. However, there were also many countries with programs which only served people with visual impairment and no other disabilities. And somewhat less frequently, services are provided through non-vision specific programs that serve a broad range of disabilities. The Estonian Federation of the Blind reported that in Estonia, quote, every disabled person can theoretically get about 30 hours of rehabilitation services every year. But in practice, very few can use that opportunity because only three small rehabilitation institutes specialize in services for blind and visually impaired children and adults, end quote. Another challenge, particularly in countries which have established job training and employment services, is that adult rehabilitation programs may not have flexibility or expertise to support older adults and those who lose their vision later in life. In Austria, the Federation of the Blind and Partially Sighted shared, quote, the gap between adults who have occupation have an occupation and adults who are retired has increased. The offer for adolescents seeking employment has improved. Occupational rehabilitation will receive further funding, but support for rehab programs for adults with acquired sight loss is likely to decrease, end quote. This is also a challenge in the United States, where recent workforce legislation may limit the ability of some rehabilitation programs to provide services to people who are not seeking competitive employment. Senior citizens with vision loss are also often disadvantaged by systemic government reforms. The Australian Blindness Forum shared that in Australia, quote, disability and aged care reforms are taking place. While those under 65 years will be catered for through the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the rest of the specialist blindness workforce may be lost in a market-driven environment where single disability organizations cannot survive. For those over age 65, the aged care sector is focused on frail aged home and residential support and does not cater for people under the age of 80 years to receive rehabilitation services after the loss of vision to remain independent. This cohort will be disadvantaged in the future and be at risk of social isolation, suffer from depression, and enter residential support earlier." End quote. So now that I've shared a little bit about who is being served in residential, I'm sorry, in rehabilitation programs around the world, let's look at where these services are being provided. Of the three types of service delivery models considered in this survey, community-based rehabilitation programs are the most likely to be offered and serve the most people. 73% of the countries responding to our survey anticipated future increases in services provided in the community. 12% expect these services to stay the same, and 15% projected a decrease in community services for people with vision loss. Organizations report that in-home rehabilitation services are also expected to increase. 64% of responding countries anticipate an increase, 13% anticipated, 13 anticipate a decrease, and 23% expected no change. 
Importantly, these in-home service delivery models are frequently used to provide services for older adults who may not be able or willing to travel even to a community-based center or who may benefit from services delivered within the context of their day-to-day -day lives. For example, according to the National Committee of Welfare for the Blind in Japan, quote, the number of elderly people has been increasing. The services both at community and home are keenly important. More rehabilitation specialists and experts have to be employed by local communities in the rural area to meet the needs of these people." End quote. Although most countries projected an in increases in the in-home and community-based services, only 43% of responding countries expect an increase in residential programs to serve people with vision loss. ONCE in Spain described being part of a, quote, global shift from residential rehab services to community-based services based on the principles of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, close quote. In Hungary, for example, this shift is apparent in the report from the Hungarian Federation of the Blind and partially cited, sharing that, quote, there used to be one single rehabilitation center, while during the past several, several years, additional regional visual impairment rehabilitation centers have been established." End quote. Likewise, the Uganda National Association of the Blind explained, quote, government services are now decentralized or brought nearer to people and communities where they live, end quote. Another reason for the shift away from residential programs is that in comparison with other service delivery models, residential programs often serve the fewest total number of people in a country within a given year. Countries which rely on these programs as an important component of their rehabilitation system report that they do not have the capacity to provide services to everyone in need. The Sri Lanka Council for the Blind and Sri Lanka Federation of the Visually Handicapped reported, quote, the limited resources and inadequate funding make it a challenge to expand the program and include more participants." End quote. Regardless of the service delivery approach, geographic and transportation factors significantly impact both provision of services and access to services. The National Organization of the Blind of Brazil described in their response to the survey that the huge dimensions of their country are a major challenge for providing services to all Brazilians with vision loss. In Cyprus, the Pan-Cyprian Organization of the Blind reported that a major challenge for participants is, quote, traveling to the venue where the programs are offered due to very poor transportation service, end quote. In the Equatorial Guinea, the National Organization of Equatorial Blind has directly addressed the accessible transportation issue by providing the transportation services themselves. Quote, we pick them up every day and take them back home when they finish their rehabilitation and recre recreation sessions. Remote and rural areas pose some of the greatest challenges to providing services. However, even urban areas can pose limitations to services if the public transportation systems or the pedestrian pathways that we just heard about are not accessible. Additionally, countries from the UK to the Philippines are including peer support as part of their in-home services. The Norwegian Association of the Blind and Partially Sighted offers a peer service in which, quote, individuals who want a home visit 
can get a visit from a peer. Many feel alone about the, their situation, and they don't know about the opportunities and don't know anything about their welfare rights. To have a meaningful conversation with an experienced person with low vision can contribute to inspiration and more faith in the future. The organization recruits, educates, and tutors equal persons." End quote. So I've shared a little bit about what we've learned about who is receiving services, where these services are being provided. The final aspect of the report, and perhaps the most critical, is what? What specific services are being provided? And what have we learned about the quality of those services? Whether services are overseen by public or private organizations, all countries reported a need for more resources in order to extend and improve or to develop and initiate rehabilitation services to people who are blind or visually impaired. Often these resources hinge on recognition of a need for services at a national level. As reported by Association CEFODEV in Chad, where, quote, there is still no formal rehabilitation system for blind and partially sighted persons. While a Disabled Persons Act was developed that would provide protection for persons with disabilities, this was not signed by the President. As a result, there is no government support of services or programs, and all programs are delivered by private organizations. As a consequence, there is no money to develop rehabilitation programs. End quote. Even in countries with multiple established service delivery models, services vary in quantity and quality from location to location because, as was described by the Union of the Blind in Bulgaria, service levels, quote, depend on the budget and the number of staff serving, end quote. Additionally, with advances in the access and accessible technology, Rehabilitation providers increasingly require more equipment and funding in order to provide appropriate tools and training. So not surprisingly, the survey responses revealed variations in the quantity and types of service provided. Travel training and orientation and mobility were provided in over 85% of the responding countries. All 25 of the responding countries that have in-home service programs offered travel training and or orientation and mobility in at least some of those programs. However, 15 of the 36 responding countries with community-based rehabilitation programs reported that few to none of their community-based programs offered travel training or orientation and mobility. All but five of the 34 countries with residential programs offered at least some travel training or orientation and mobility in those programs. In contrast, job and business development services were offered in less than 62% of responding countries. Only 13 of the 24 responding countries with in-home training programs offered any job or business development in those programs. Only 20 of the 34 countries with community-based programs offered any job or business development services in those programs. And half of the 32 responding countries said that some or all of their residential programs offered job and business development. 
So I've briefly reviewed what the survey reveals about the who, the where, and the what of global vision rehabilitation services for people who are blind or visually impaired. I hope that you will find time to review the entire report and contact us if you have questions. As a researcher, a teacher, an advocate, and a policy analyst, I believe that we've identified many areas of strength and growth, but there are certainly areas for improvement. Perhaps the most exciting thing to me, numerous organizations report recent significant changes in national legislation in policies and in services in connection with the ratification and or implementation of the, you guys know what I'm going to say, right? The UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So a round of applause for all the hard work that you, that's going on. This time of change is both an impetus for raising public awareness of disability rights as well as a unique opportunity for organizations to engage with their governments and with international partners in shaping quality rehabilitation programs. The National Union of the Blind in the Congo shared, quote, the adoption of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the subsequent adoption of internal legislation has resulted in significant gains with respect to awareness on the part of government and to situations faced by persons with disabilities. End quote. The National Association of the Blind in Mauritania wrote that, quote, given the establishment of a disability advocacy strategy and its implementation in, in accordance with commitments required as a result of ratification of the UN Convention, we are hopeful for improvements with respect to the rehabilitation of the blind in all categories. End quote. The World Blind Union member organizations are playing key roles in helping influence new policies and legislation, as with the Mongolian National Federation of the Blind, which is, quote, negotiating with the respective Ministry of Mongolia on the issue of making the Rehabilitation Training Center a vocational training center, end quote, which they anticipate will lead to an increase in services and participants. Several countries reported recent positive changes in, po in public attitudes towards people who are blind or visually impaired. The Philippine Blind Union predicted that, quote, due to the increased awareness campaign led by the blind sector in the Philippines, more adult blind and visually impaired will be encouraged to come out from their home, undergo rehabilitation and vocational skills training, and become more productive individuals, end quote. However, combating discrimination and promoting public awareness and acceptance remain significant challenges around the globe. The National Council of the Blind in Malaysia reported that family members are often reluctant to accept services. And in Guinea-Bissau, the Ghanaian Association for Rehabilitation believes that, quote, the most important barriers are family complexity, lack of will to take the disabled to public places, and lack of awareness at social levels. Based upon this analysis, further research is strongly recommended to better understand the factors influencing differences among and changes within rehabilitation systems in WBU member countries. The survey methods employed for this study were useful for a preliminary analysis. However, these results cannot be easily generalized to those non-responding countries or analyzed for predictive factors. 
With sponsorship from the WBU and a team of researchers from all WBU regions, future research could employ culturally responsive, qualitative and quantitative methods, including translator-facilitated interviews, to ensure the respondents are able to answer questions in a consistent manner. This could reduce misinterpretations and confusion and increase the comparability of results. Future studies should endeavor to collect feedback from a greater percentage, if not all, of the WBU member nations so that more in-depth, valid, and reliable analyses can be formed based upon regional, geographic, and cultural variables. With these more in-depth methods, research can lead to greater collaboration and identification of best practices for the international field of rehabilitation for people who are blind and visually impaired. The findings from this rehabilitation survey should encourage WBU member organizations to continue collaborating and sharing resources to support increased access to appropriate services for people around the world. We can use our shared experiences and data to avoid reinventing the wheel and to be stronger together. Our WBU regions may be well positioned to facilitate the sharing of best practices among countries with similar geographic and cultural contexts. The WBU, WBU regions, and member countries should closely follow the implementation of the UNCRPD and associated policy changes in order to promote the inclusion, access, awareness, and acceptance. In closing, I would like to thank Dr. Penny Harton, Mr. Carl Augusto, Mr. Mark Reichert, the World Blind Union Rehabilitation Committee, and all of the individuals and organizations who helped with the development of the survey. Sincere thanks to many organizational leaders who took the time to collaborate, gather data, and respond with very helpful details and feedback. Additional thanks to Dr. Penny Harton, Ms. Ianina Rodriguez, and Ms. Judith Barsavsky for valuable assistance in translating the French, Spanish, and Portuguese responses to the survey. I am so pleased to be here for both the WBU and ICEVI events, and I look forward to meeting more people and to working and learning together about our strengths and solutions so that we can continue to collaborate and coordinate our efforts. I welcome your questions and feedback, and I look forward to the panel discussion. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Doctora Sheffield, por esta detallada presentación y por la calidad.
We will continue with the session. At the end, we are going to open the floor for a debate so that there can be questions, answers, and comments. And we now go to the last two presenters with two different models, world models. Now, Gertrude Fofam, who is a counselor for advocacy for sight savers worldwide. Gertrude, we give you the microphone. Thank you very much, Enrique. And thank you, Rebecca. I am Gertrude Uferwafe family a global advice advisor with Site Service, Vice Chair of ICV, and National Responsibilities. I bring you greetings from Site Service. And on my behalf, my own behalf, and behalf of Site Service, also congratulate our brother Fred. We will continue working for the progress of World Blind Union. I once again thank the organizers. This is my fifth General Assembly, and it's my pleasure to say that I'm always made useful, an active participant, and I thank everybody for that. So my responsibility is to look at some of the key messages and also some implications. And with the excellent presentation by Rebecca, you'd agree with me that it's not going to be an easy job. But also coming from a practical aspect, and every, a bit of tilting in developing countries, I'm sure you're going to find some new ideas that we've taken away. So one of the key issues we have identified is that rehabilitation is a human rights issue. Rebecca said it. And it's covered so many areas, health, education, social development, employment, what have you. It also means that for us to achieve this important phenomenon, it's also important in achieving our sustainable development goals because CRPD, Disability Apps, SDGs, are friends in development. Rehabilitation is something that benefits a wide range of individuals, whether it is in developing countries or industrial area, is something that's a key issue I wish to bring to your attention. So it's always applicable in different settings also. And as we learned from the report in homes, in institutions, in communities, there are different models that are applicable for our use. It therefore encourages us to take advantage of these appropriate models in our work. One other key issue that I have learned from this work is that 
as much as efforts are ongoing, there is limitation. Many people are not having the access. So our individuals and organizations need to bear this in mind. It therefore behoves on us as individuals and experts and leaders to ensure that we improve opportunities and also expand. In this attempt, please, we also need to recognize the different players and engage them. Government, private, NGOs, disability community, who have you? We need to engage them. Otherwise, we cannot make the influence we want to make. Apart from what I've said, the survey has been an eye-opener. The survey explained the services that is the questionnaire talked about. And passing through my mind, I could now recognize that there are times and areas of coverage and some initiatives that might not even been recognized or may not have been added. An example I'm, I'm bringing to mind is like, there's a school for the blind in Ghana, and that school has a unit that, as an education program, works with adults in engaging them and preparing them for work after they've become newly blind and partially, or partially sighted. I wonder if we did recognize that extension and brought them to bear when we are answering the questionnaire. It is a repetition service. I think you agree with me. And there are other also settings that come to mind, particularly in some circumstances, like we might find in Africa, where probably some informal work is going on. And because they have not been formalized, we might not have recognized them as rehabilitation service. So, for example, if a mentor worked with an expectant mother in the best care of herself and preparing her in the best care of a young lady, I would not think that that initiative might be recognized. But if also a project has been established by the Organization of the Blind and this same mentor work with individuals, because it's now a project, a formal project, it's very likely that we would have taken recognition with it, of it and would be recorded in our work as rehabilitation service. So there is likely to be some areas that this report, this survey is bringing our attention to and we can better capitalize to open opportunities and improve service to our membership. So another thing that we have also come to recognize is that CBR have come to stay. 
The community-based reputation processes approach have come to stay, and it is an intervention that we would need to work with and improve. It does not take away the role of home service and the role of institution, but as the report showed us, it's something that we need to keep an eye on. The other thing that the report tells us, and I want us to bear in mind that broad disability initiatives are also in the increase. So many years ago, as blind and low vision or partially sighted persons, we had more services in rehabilitation that were for blind and partially sighted persons and with those with additional disability. But more and more, we are finding ourselves in the broad disability arena and it is for us to work with the agencies to ensure the blind and partially sighted persons benefit to the optimum. That engagement is important, something that we need to go away with. We have also been exposed to different arenas. So even if we have set up our own program, now we know there is home. We know there's that agency doing the decision, and probably we are doing CBR. But then it now gives an opportunity to assess the need of our members. What does this person need most? And to be able to appropriately refer for the maximum benefit for the individual. So now, if we used to bring everybody into our program, we might change it a bit now. So, what, how can we use the report? Firstly, for advocacy. Rebecca has said it, I've said it, I'm saying it again, that we need it's an evidence for us to use to engage for improvement and for expansion. It also uh, provides us models and different components and best practices for innovation and learning and sharing. Rebecca said this, and I'm saying it again. So now whether we are expanding or instituting or designing a new one, we have different models to bring in mind, different expansions, different areas that we might not have been adding for us to take away with. For example, if we were doing a vocational training and we did not include business development, now we know. The report has shown that it's tickled us. So now we will add it so that the individuals benefiting from the vocational training will be equipped with the skills that enable them to set up their own viable enterprise. That is where we want to get to. Psychosocial empowerment and self-awareness is something that people might think is not part of rehabilitation, but the report is telling us so if we used to do work and we didn't do that, we didn't do leadership, today we know. And we're not going to miss it again. It's a foundation for success of every, every initiative, so far as I believe in. The awareness that has been made is not enough, so it is a teaser. It's giving us the strengths and giving us the weaknesses for us to work harder. 
We reminded many countries to respond, but unfortunately many didn't. But we believe that even those who didn't are now going to find use of this report and use it productively. We will therefore be willing to get feedback, but we also now use it to encourage us that please do not only wait for surveys from World Blind Union or similar organizations, but let's turn around. There are usually things that are going around in our communities. Surveys are going on. And let us be interested and get engaged because they are going to be useful. Finally, as we work harder, we might need a more in-depth survey. It is my humble appeal that when it comes, and Rebecca said it, we will enthusiastically all respond so that we can have that in-depth, that cultural, that language, that facility, that make us get the tool that we can compare and use much more than we can use it. Dear friends, it is a tool that cannot be underrated. And I believe we are going to use it for our progressive development, for our membership. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias, Gertrude, por esa exposición detallada y apasionada, como siempre, y evidenciando and detailed presentation and thank you for improving the different models for different realities but with common necessities and we are going to finish with the last intervention before the plenary general session John Rafferty John is an old friend always nearby and a very good and active participant of other general assemblies president of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind John Thank you, Enrique, and thank you, everyone. I'm not sure whether I should be honored or scared about being the last presenter of the day. I know I stand between you and either later meetings this evening. I know that there are a number or uh, that first glass of wine, um, so I will be relatively brief. Um, it was very interesting to participate in this particular piece because uh, Canada has been on a very interesting journey itself regarding rehabilitation, and I think... Uh, um, I, sharing some of the lessons we've learned and a little bit about us uh, would be uh, something that hopefully people will find interesting and informative. Uh, Canada uh, and the CNIB have been providing rehabilitation since 1918, so almost 100 years, and, and we've gone through the various methodologies of providing rehab from an entirely residential-based programming in our early days to introducing community-based programs in addition to residential, to then providing in-house and subsequently ceasing with our residential programs, and now um, having a new venue in providing programming that is virtual and online as well. Um, through this process, in any given year, we provide rehab to around 40,000 Canadians, uh, 10,000 of whom are um, receiving rehab for the first time, having just been diagnosed uh, or referred to us for service. 
Uh, we provide service to over 10,000 children and over 150,000 Canadians overall. Um, so we thought when we began a journey a few years ago that we knew a thing or two about rehabilitation. Um, it sounds like we're, we're relatively experienced. And we found um, wanting to anchor uh, our future of rehabilitation under the UNCRPD uh, and really have a conversation with government about where the rights of somebody belong within our continuum of healthcare compared to where the value-added work that we do uh, as a foundation in the country, uh, that this was going to be a fairly easy process. What we found, which I think is really very pertinent in, in the research and some of the comments of Dr. Sheffield and, and also of Gertrude, is that the starting point for us uh, was actually more difficult than we thought. We had to start by defining what do we mean when we say rehabilitation and how does that fit within the continuum of other community services and healthcare uh, that are offered throughout Canada. Uh, and it was a, a very interesting piece that I encourage and challenge uh, everyone, whether you're in the early stages of developing rehabilitation programs or whether you feel that you understand what it is and, and are fairly mature uh, in that area, that the definitional work that gets done uh, is, is paramount. Uh, we concluded the definitions with something that we were very proud of for the first time in Canada, creating an actual patient charter for vision health and rehabilitation. Uh, a, a promise that is between uh, the healthcare community, the rehabilitation community, and Canadians who are blind or partially sighted themselves, uh, that acted as uh, the playbook uh, for the patient journey. Uh, and that itself is uh, something that we thought was a critical uh, step in the process. So having done our initial definition work, we started working on uh, how do we go about ensuring that the quality uh, of rehabilitation fits the need. Uh, we uh, want to make sure that we're both gathering data up front as well as measuring appropriate outcomes. Um, and for those who are in more developed countries that are, uh, that are dealing with outcome measurements, uh, we do that with uh, the COPM, so um, certain performance metrics um, for achievement of goals. And having the, uh, the, the certified uh, professionals delivering it put them on an even footing uh, with everyone else within the healthcare continuum. So... This was uh, a, an interesting journey for us. I think that the research showed uh, a great variety of stages that countries around the world are at within their rehab. Um, as to the how rehab is delivered in the future and the types and locations for rehab, I think that we, we too need to start talking about what is the best method. Everything that we do is about achieving an appropriate outcome for the individual. Uh, services need to be tailored to people's needs. And just the sheer uh, differences of geography. Um, in Canada, we have urban areas uh, such as Toronto with 6 million 
million people, and we have clients who we serve where we can only get to their community when the river is frozen and we can drive over it. Um, so there's great differences in how you go about delivering um, rehabilitation services, and it is highly appropriate to have a combination of residential, community, and in-house programming. Uh, something that I would like to also encourage people to look at for the future, and it doesn't replace certified professionals delivering rehab, but our ability to put uh, YouTube instructional videos on our YouTube channel um, that uh, gets approximately 5,000 views to rehabilitation type uh, videos each month um, is something which is an initial gateway, particularly for those that, that are struggling with being able to get access to rural and remote communities um, and how you can uh, often not have the, the type of frequency of care. Um, the ability for us as a community worldwide in dealing with rehabilitation to move the needle forward I think needs us to start arriving on common definitions. Uh, we find great uh, success when we talk to like-minded organizations around the world in helping us um, at, with a starting point of common definitions. The ability to have a questionnaire done in person in their own language and culture um, and I encourage that we increase the level of participation. I think that this is a phenomenal forum for people around the world to reach out to uh, like-minded countries uh, uh, as, as well as other friends and neighbors and find out how, our, um, uh, how are we delivering and coping with the challenges of technology, the challenges of geography, the challenges... Uh, that exist that are very different in, in our many countries. So um, I found the research incredibly useful, uh, but I also found that the, the next step that we need to do is to really um, hone in on common language and definition uh, so that we can start learning more easily from each other around the world. Um, so with that, I will open it, uh, hand it back to Henri, Enrique and open it up for questions. Thank you, John, for your presentation and for being so brief and for opening it to the world and for allowing us to continue learning of different models and sharing our realities. We are now going to questions. If Remember to raise your sign with the name of the country, and once you get the microphone, say your name, the country, and to whom you're asking the question. And then be very succinct so that we can allow the, the most number of questions possible for what we have as the remainder of the afternoon. Thank you. It's not working. Uh. Thank you, Paris. This is S.K. Rungta from India. I just want uh, to flag two issues. Uh, they, they, they are not questions, just to flag two issues which need attention while developing our rehabilitation strategies and addressing the issue of rehabilitation providing services, rehabilitation services. <coughs> the first issue relates to systemic and delivery models 
and that relates to the involvement of different agencies governing bodies government bodies which are involved in the in various stages of community based rehabilitation or any model of delivery of rehabilitation services and therefore this com- this brings us to the issue of the the methodology of encouraging multisectoral cooperation and convergence second issue which i want to flag flag for consideration for wbu leadership is the issue of emerging trends of developing rehabilitation services models for cross disability and in that process the needs of visually impaired blind and partially sighted brothers and sisters is often lost sight of that is also an issue which probably wbo must engage in and must address thank you very much muchas gracias por los comentarios las reflexiones for your comments we are going to make a note of those the next country Mitch Pomerantz from the United States. I read the report with considerable interest because I assisted Carl Augusto in completing the survey for the U.S. Um, what I found troubling was that less than a quarter of the nations that are part of the World Blind Union completed the survey and i came away with the inevitable thought that as serious as the rehabilitation situation is in the 46 countries that responded perhaps things were even more serious in the 100 plus 120 plus that did not respond um here in the states with the passage of uh, the workforce innovation and opportunity act Uh, we're going to see a real crisis develop in the state of California where i serve on our department of rehabilitation's blind advisory committee two thirds of our placements of our case closures over the last three or four years are not employment closures but they are what are called homemaker closures these are people who cannot work either due to family responsibilities or age and they're no longer going to get services not just in California but throughout the country as serious as it is in our country i can only imagine how serious it's going to be in other parts of the world and i really believe this issue has to be uh, a top priority for the world blind union because we have literally millions of blind and visually impaired persons out in the world who are not going to get any services thank you Gracias, Mitch. Alguna Thank you, Mitch. Any reply from anybody here at the table, Dr. Sheffield? Uh, I would I would add to that in a total agreement with um uh, Mitch's comments that 
that I think we um, we saw a lot of comments in the survey about serving older people with vision loss and people who acquire vision loss related to age. And in the United States, um, the American Foundation for the Blind is helping to support a national agenda on aging and vision loss because we know how critical and how this is our, our most vulnerable population. And what I was excited about from the survey is that I think some of the models that we're seeing, even even in countries that have very limited resources, can be applied because in parts of the United States, we have very little resources to serve older folks with vision loss. And so some of these models of having that senior citizen in the, in the community who knows, how, um, who knows what it's like to, um, to make your home accessible you know, let's network those folks together and let them help one another the same way that's happening in, um, in communities around the world where people with vision loss are, are coming together through support groups and, and self-advocacy. So I think we have a lot to learn from each other, but this is a really important issue. Senegal. Thank you so much, uh, Chair. My name is Musa Chare. I am from Senegal. Uh, I deeply uh, agree that there is a close link between uh, rehabilitation, uh, sensitization, and information, because I think that uh, for visual impaired and blind people to get uh, through receipts, uh, they need to be sensitized. Uh, but also get good information. Uh, but apart from that, uh, I would like to, to know now what should be um, the, the part played by uh, blind people and visually um, uh, blind people and partially sighted people as far as uh, rehabilitation is concerned. Thank you very much. So. I, I think I, I understand the question. What is the, the role? We, we have many uh, individuals who are certified professionals who are blind or partially sighted delivering the rehabilitation. Um, I think that there is also a huge role within the adjustment to vision loss and the peer support process uh, that we find, um, as well as uh, a number of the other community-based programs that get, get offered. So um, I think that there is nothing that can replace the perspective of an individual how, who has gone through the journey themselves in delivering the journey to others. It's not doesn't make it the exclusive domain of people who are blind or partially sighted, but um, wherever possible, being able to train uh, professionals who are themselves blind or partially sighted and certify them to deliver the rehabilitation, uh, we think has a, a great value add. Muchas gracias, John. Colombia. Soy Dian Lerman de Colombia. Gracias, Enrique. No es una pregunta, es un comentario. Esa 
question and it's a comment that it has to do with that definition of rehabilitation service and the most delicate issue the financing sources the rehabilitation systems in Colombia and in many countries in Latin America are going through a critical moment because the services are not sustainable there is not a clarity in the public investment what sector of the state has to invest and in what amount and there is a big deficit as far as the quality of the services rendered and it is urgent that we review within the concept of rehabilitation of blind people and limited uh, sight that is called technical and technological support thank you thank you Dan for that idea Without a doubt, financing is always going to go hand in hand with quality. It cannot be less. Mapopashava. Um, place on behalf of uh, the country Malawi and indeed on my own behalf let me congratulate Fred for standing or for winning unopposed to the position of the president of the WBU it's my hope that for the first time Fred will be the first president of WBU to be in our country in the shortest time possible <laughs> leaving politics to politicians as politicians leave, ting, leave teaching to teachers I'm not campaigning but I'm directly telling the truth that he's visiting us and that he's opening doors during this assembly for countries, different countries to meet him otherwise what I wanted to say is that uh, the research exercise is a beautiful thing and an interesting exercise if the lives of people with visual impairment are to change for the better. However, there is one aspect we need to include, which probably uh, the researchers did not include much, though it is clear, it is seen here and there. And this is when we want to be successful in the rehabilitation process, I hope we should begin with parents. It is um, an exercise which can begin at the community level because it is the parent who knows uh, how best uh, to impart skills, home skills to the child so that this child keeps on surviving because rehabilitation has something to do with survival skills. So it is the parent because as you know Achebe says in his book Things for Apart and I quote, when Elizabeth jumps from a high rocket tree onto the ground and if there is nobody to praise him, he always praises himself. The parent plays a greater part in this process other than us complaining time and again funding to the rehabilitation exercise in different countries are not enough. The parent can use skills, home skills, which do not require much funding to assist us and teaching from known to unknown. When we do the rehabilitation exercise on an individual who has already been rehabilitated by the parent, it will be easy for that child or for that individual to understand what we want to impart in him or her. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Gracias, Malawi. Thank you, Malawi. Is there any answer to that? 
important special education is so my um, or and then education services so we didn't look at that piece of the survey because and I think um, in the United States our, our rehabilitation programs are often for those people who acquire vision loss later in life but when we're thinking about folks who are um, who have been blind and visually impaired from birth we we definitely want to um, in, in countries like the United States, we are working really hard to make sure that that transition happens as effectively as possible and that those, those um, organizations from early childhood to the school system to um, work and college and career are all connected. Muchas gracias, Rebecca. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And so we have one last intervention from Ecuador Guinea. So please go ahead. Muchas gracias. Yes, thank you very much. And so the questions are very diverse. What I would like to say is that there's something that I think that could help out. And um, I think we have a lot of problems in a lot of in some places. Um, and people, let's say the organizations uh, have, let's say, um, installations, a minimum of material to work with, and uh, people themselves uh, that we, who receive the, the services do not go there. And that's the case of Equatorial Guinea, and I think that in other countries the same situation is going on. And I think it's very important to be able to insist the fact of the sensibilization Uh, for the people who have the visual impairment and also the families. And the other topic which is really important is the finance part. And um, many times we present projects, and I don't, I don't think that's just the Equatorial New Guinea, uh, but because it's not a priority issue for our governments or the companies or e even the... The United Nations organizations, the projects are basically on just wet paper. And um, I don't know if it's possible for the World Blind Union could insist that the United Nations, by way of these agencies like PNUD or OMS or, or UNICEF, they could have, uh, let's say, entities that are priorities for the moment of uh, financing projects and for, for people who are blind, especially in the case of of organizations for the blind people and in, 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 in mostly for uh, underdeveloped countries because it's not easy because the other entities that don't are not making money already have difficulty and it, we're going to be having more difficulties because we're working for people who have um, discapacities who have uh, impairment and I asked to see if maybe the the World Blind Union can talk with the United Nations to be able to To, so that the entities, the, the uh, let's say the institutions of the United Nations in our countries can be able to do it. Maybe if they can't finance directly, maybe they could at least help as a support in order to be able to find financing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rocoso, for your proposal. A any other last comment uh, from the table before we conclude? Enrique. Thank you for all, uh, all contributors, particularly the last person. Yes, it is important that we address the issue, but also let us situate the rehabilitation services across board. In, so like UNICEF, let's get back home and check whether some of the UNICEF proposals, the opportunities, we cannot place different elements in the work that we do.
So I think what I want to encourage us is that we may try and diversify the approaches, look at things differently, not in the packages as it's exactly the same everywhere, that pull the innovation and use differently. And uh, Mr. Runta, yes, thank you. As I said, CBR has come to stay and we need to engage and work with it. Advocacy, advocacy, advocacy. Because government has to do his bit and we need to engage with government, private and everybody to get it done. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much, Gertrude. And uh, so finally, we're going to be getting this uh, session to the to closing. And I'd like to thank the participation of John Roffertine and Gertrude Fafan and Kirk Adams, and in particular, Rebecca Sheffield, for coordinating and elaborating that wonderful report for rehabilitation for the World Blind Union. And so I want to ask for a round of applause for everybody. And so it's almost 6 p.m. And I'd like to remind you that uh, at 6.15, we're going to be having a meeting, at uh, the networking meeting for women, the women's networking meeting. And tomorrow, we're going to be starting the session at 9 a.m., as you can remember, with the report about the statues uh, reform that is going to be presented by the president for the statues uh, chair. And so thank you very much, uh, all of you, for being here, and good afternoon. Thank you.